BBC Radio 5 Live. Earmark, they're Simon. What's up with your big, bad self? I'm waiting for you to say something controversial. OK. Sophie will have to take out. All right, OK. So part of the team uh, here is, uh, is Sophie. has been part of the show for a while. And her job is to remove things like this. So when I say to Mark, what do you make of the latest developments with uh, Trump in America? And I say... Okay, so it's 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 that kind of thing. So now, Sophie, and then <laughs> something, and then I can't s- say more. And then I say to you, Simon, and then I can't say anything back because I don't I don't cause trouble. <laughs> anyway, so a controversial start. But you know what? What I woke up this morning and I can. I woke hear, up this morning. I did discovered I was dead. No, I woke up this morning and I could hear a bird. Did you wake up this singing. morning and you heard the news? You woke up this morning and you had the blues. It was half past five in the morning and I could hear birdsong. And my first thought was, was. we're on the air. <laughs> we're doing the podcast. Yeah. Well, many, many listeners have written in to say that, that they can no longer hear Tweet of the Day without thinking that it's either... Is it always the same bit of birdsong? Is it always the same birds that we have or does it alternate? Oh, okay. Apparently, they're our own birds that we that we keep in the offices, mm. in the Witter Avery. You know, I, <laughs> so, I, I once <laughs> I, I once bought my mother a clock that it had birds on it, right? Because my mother liked bird song, and rather than chiming on the hour, it did a little little tweet. You know, it, it would make a twittery noise, mm-hmm. a different a sound of a different bird every time it went round. Nice. Well, it, yes, except it was kind of because what happened every single time was that the clock would go, and she, everyone would turn, what, what earth is that? Oh, it's the clock. Don't and you get used to it after no, a while. No, you don't. It was like literally the, the, way, the way my mother got used to it was that she took the battery out so that it no longer top was, you know. Because that's she classy, just, that is. I know. Anyway, I just love the bird song. Yeah, I love bird song. And, uh, and that's a nice thing. Which, <clears throat> what's your favourite? A blackbird. Black singing in the dead of night. I just think it's... Uh, it's very rare because it's such a common thing. It's such a common bird. So to yeah. have one of the most beautiful bird songs and it to be a very common bird seems to be unusual. Okay. Because often the plainest birds have the plainest bird song. Yeah. Quite um, like a nightingale. Really? Songbird. Okay. Jonathan Livingston Seagull. He's quite... Yes, good. I was waiting until the point that you were going to ask me what my favourite bird song was. I was, was. just coming to it. Yeah, I was yeah, just yeah. running through You were just basically running through the birds. gamut of all birds' Fs. Uh, I, don't, I don't like pigeons. Tell me what, why what, I don't what, like pigeons. But what do, do, do pigeons? They, what's the one that goes? Oh, oh, oh. That. that is that a pigeon? Yes. Don't you just hate that? But is that a, is that a wood pigeon or is that a pigeon? No, pigeons. That is a wood wood pigeon. Yeah. No. But that it, that it is a very a very distinctive sound. That, and that was actually the rhythm of one of the tracks on the Mark, local hero soundtrack. Mark Knopf, your It's the rocks and the waves, isn't it? How about that? How about that? Anyway, so pigeons will be writing to Mark Knopfler saying, "Dear Mister Knopfler, our lawyers have informed us that your track, The Rocks and the Waves, is indeed ripped off one of our songs." Connor Clark. Well, they only have one. And then song. you ask me what my favourite. Oh yeah, I thought we'd done that. I thought we'd done. No, that. we haven't done okay, that. Sorry, we just your... talked about the ones that you're interested okay. in, and I illustrated your interest by doing impressions of them. Okay. So, Mark, remind me, what are your? It's such a one. I don't want to tell you now. I, I don't know. No, I don't care. You don't care. No, it's all right. Moments passed. The moments passed. I'm not going to tell you. The moment is not passed. This is the moment. I'm telling you. Move on. I'm not going to do it. 
How long before you thaw out I'm on this particular one? Hey, listen, I can carry a grudge longer than most people. Okay, so what's your favourite bird song? I'm not telling you. When will you tell me? I'm not going to. Ever? When I think that you actually want to know rather than... What's better than a blackbird? <laughs> what do you mean, what's better than a blackbird? What sounds better than a blackbird, in your opinion? Well... Another bird that I'm not going to tell you about now. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, not going to be drawn. Because now, right now... Is I, it a big now, bird or a small now bird? Now I've stopped it. Now I've... Just stop it, right? You're just being petty now. All right? Just move on. Brown? Move on. Cream colour? Seen at the seaside? Well, okay. Just Trees, say this was woodland happen- hedges. Say this was happening in your house, right? Yeah. Okay? And you, you'd done something that had slightly irked the good lady ceramicist her indoors right yeah. would you be doing this or would you be moving on i'd be following her out to her studio saying <laughs> yeah, come would. on tell me <laughs> and you see the worst thing is so would i connor clark dear doctors last week you told us church members that if we wanted our email to be specifically read out during the podcast intro yes we should specify this in our email well can i please specify i'd like this email read out in the podcast intro thanks a lot connor <laughs> clark. there you go so that's that done. Okay, while we're doing podcast intro things, let me just pull this up. You carry on. I'll just go. I'm just just, just want to make sure I get this right. Okay, I'm not going to carry on if you're doing something else. No, I'm just I'm just checking something because I have a uh, thing that I need to do. Here we go. Fine. Okay. So, uh, so you sing Happy Birthday, and I'll do the name. Okay. Okay. Happy yeah. Birthday. No, no, no. Do you have to do the whole song? I don't want to. I don't sing. You do. I'm not a performing monkey. Okay, I'll, I'll do it. Happy, happy birthday yeah. to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Orla, who's eight and is going to see Nativity Rocks on Sunday because he's got Craig Grover Horwood in it. Happy birthday to you. That's very nice. I'm well I know Orla, actually. She's, she is, Orla is an extraordinary uh, child who, at the age of eight, appears to be reading like War and Peace you know, it, it, has it ever occurred to you that it is actually true that the younger generation are smarter than we were? Well, it but, occurs the, 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 to me every now and again. But it, but it is true, isn't it, that incrementally the generations get cleverer, although I'm, sometimes uh, some of them leap, yeah. leap ahead. Happy birthday, Orla. I think about that and then I'm overcome with bitterness and resentment and, <laughs> and, I, and I forget about it. OK. So here's an email from Nigel Thorpe. Actually, he signs it Nigel Keith Thorpe. Yes, really, Keith, get over it, he says. I listen to your podcast. So the key thing here is Nigel. Oh, OK, fine. But it's what? another. It's another thing about being called Nigel. Yeah, okay, but why Keith get over it? Well, because Nigel and Keith, I think together, I think he's. The assumption is they're a bit naff names. Are they? Anyway, let me let well, me read. Okay, fine, fine, fine. I listened to your podcast early each Monday morning on the way to work, and I've been following the saga of the use of Nigel as a moniker that children give their rather boring fathers. Until last week's podcast, I felt I should hold my counsel, but Alan's email suggesting that they called all pilots Nigels and the later revelation that this was reserved for pilots working for the Big Blue Airline has forced me to respond. You see, I'm not only a Nigel, but I'm also a pilot, though not for the Big Blue Airline or indeed any other. Not only that, but I also had to suffer the ignominy of this moniker since birth when my grandmother suggested that that was what I should be called from her deathbed. So for years, I've had to put up with people making fun of my name. Even my young children giggle when they hear it. And my wife, Maddie, often titters to herself as she calls out, Nigel! (laughs) That was me being Maddie. Yeah, I I figured. When summoning me to complete a job around the house. Despite this affliction, I managed to attain my childhood dream and become a helicopter pilot in the RAF. (laughs) albeit a run-of-the-mill, decidedly middle-of-the-road, or indeed Nigel one. So I'd like to request that the good professor says, 
a kind of everything will be all right to the handful of Nigels born last year and to let them know that there is indeed a future beyond their name. I'd also appreciate a what's up to all members of the RAF Chinook Force deployed around the world. Yes. Tonk and all that, Nigel Keith Thorpe. Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, you know, one of my very best friends in the whole world is called Nigel. Yes. Nigel Floyd. Yes. He's not a, a, a pilot or a helicopter pilot or anything. He's a very, he's a very fabulous film critic. And I've, it's never occurred to me that his name is anything other than... I mean, I call him Nige. Big Nige sometimes. Although he's no bigger than I am, but we just he's kind of referred to as Big Nige. Is that right? Nige, yeah. But anyway, to be Nigel and Keith is quite a burden. And Why? I I, what's the Keith thing? When did that happen? Keith is the new Nigel. Is that because of... Wait, you mean because it's like in Nuts in Mate? Keith... They're not listening, Keith. I, I suppose it's not a super cool name, is it? Like, uh, Sonny. Is Sonny a super cool name? Hmm? Is Sonny a super cool name? I don't know. Is there What's what's a super cooler name than, than, than Sonny? Uh, well, I don't Stan. Know. I don't know. I mean, I know somebody called Nimrod. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the end of that, because you can't... There's no coming back from that. <laughs> How old is Nimrod? Uh... Well, I think younger than me, just about. Okay, so not a child. No, no, I don't know a child. Called... No, but the point is, what I'm saying is that you, that you say this like Nigel and Keith being sort of naff names, but it's, it's just that's only at this moment in time, and I don't even think they are. I don't. I, I mean, I'm called Mark for heaven's sake. Simon is like must be the, one of the most common names in the world. Here's the thing. Look, uh, I suppose. I suppose if it's in the Bible, then it tends to have. There tend to be more of us. Yes, and also it's, it's kind of it's a, it's fairly it, timeless. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, can I just do this thing? Yeah. From, go ahead. Don't let me interrupt you with telling you what my favourite birds are. No one cares. What are your favourite birds? I'm not telling you. Well, there's no point in me asking. <laughs> no, no, there isn't. Just get on and do the thing. Is it a robin? I'm slightly cross with you. It's an eagle. I'm, you know, is it an eagle? Albatross. <laughs> yeah, albatross. It's a, <laughs> a chalk ice. <laughs> what flavour is it? It's albatross flavour. Dear Drew and Jim, says Daniel, with childlike delight, I can confirm that your podcast award has completed the most recent leg of its journey. It has arrived safely back in London. My name is Daniel. I'm an old friend of both British Columbia Tim and Hong Kong Gabby. The that was a cartoon two, sequence uh, a, series, wasn't it? The previous two custodians. Hong Kong Gabby is, yes, it is a bit like that and certainly should be. Certainly more so than British Columbia Tim, which doesn't have a ring to it. <laughs> doesn't work. Imagine my surprise. Imagine the, my surprise. When the office post arrived with a package larger than the post trolley that bore it, a wheelbarrow-shaped package, and inside a slightly chippy, faintly seasick Perspex award. I imagine the barrow and packaging were slightly less comfortable than the cruise cabin of its previous ocean crossing. So, on Sunday, having recruited my friend and fellow church member, Heather Peebles, we set off with a ward for lunch at the castle on the Portobello Road in London, photo attached. So it's back in... It's back it was in the Portobello Road. Heather will take over award guiding duties before the, uh, we ship the award off in as much barrelly comfort as possible to the next custodian. Hello to Fairport Convention, Stephen Fry, Dumpy's Rusty Nuts and Jason Isaacs. So we haven't mentioned some of those for a very long time. Dumpy's Rusty Nuts I'd completely forgotten about. Tinky Tonk and all that stuff. Thank you, uh, thank you, Daniel. So anyway, when, when, so it's when, back, it's yes, back. Yes, OK, when you say it's slightly chippy, meaning it's been chipped. I imagine that is, rather than slightly chippy people. So basically when the award comes back, it's going to be in used... More than one one previous careful, right? It means it's been damaged. Unless unless he's giving it because it was he said it's 
faintly seasick, so maybe he's giving it yeah, a personality. Yeah, a characteristic, that it's not yes. chipped, it is chippy. Yeah, OK. Uh, well, anyway, it's it's moving off on its travels. And what an exciting journey. This is almost like a whole TV series that we should uh, we should suggest I'm sure that even now, to ignore. Even now, Channel 5 have got a, you know, I'm an award, get me out of here. That's, that has a certain ring to it. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Anyway, uh, it, look, it's quite close to the news, so we should shut up and get on with the rest of the show. If you absolutely insist. What's your favourite bird? I'm not telling you. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you in the podcast outros. Oh, I'm looking forward to that <laughs> when you tell us thrush. What? Thrush. Not a thrush. Why would it be a thrush? Well, it could be anything. I what just... noise does a thrush make? <laughs> it makes a bird song. Go on, it. do a... Right, go on. I did pigeon. Do a thrush. What does a thrush sound like? I don't know. It sounds like a tweety bird. <laughs> See? Oh, very good. Okay. Oh, hey. Welcome to the programme. Oh, hey. You sounded surprised. Well, you know, seven minutes past two o'clock. You'd think we'd be used to it by now, Friday afternoon, <laughs> movies and all that kind you of off stuff. guard? Just slightly. Uh, so, how are you, by the way? You're looking great. I am, thank you. Excellent. And how are you? You're Very looking great too. Thank you. Peter Jackson. You're great, mate. Going to be with us after 2.30. Uh, you can email us, mayo at bbc.co.uk. You can text 85058. Robert Grover, however, has a query. Yeah. I very much enjoyed your show for many years, but one aspect of the modern technology is troubling me. Yes. Simon often refers to being able to watch the whole thing via the Five Live website. I've searched and searched many times for a link that will enable me to watch this aspect of the show. Can you please spell out for me how to do this? Many thanks. Well, how to watch it on the... So, well, obviously, how do you watch the show? You just watch the show. You just watch the show, Rob. It's very straightforward. However, if that answer doesn't suffice, you go to bbc.co.uk slash five live. You scroll down the homepage until you get to the section called Watch Live inside the studios and then you click live on the square with the arrow i hope that's clear public service information don't you think as it's most public service well Thanks. done now this is a little bit um <clears throat> if you're squeamish yes you might well, well i know you are but you i am no very squeamish but yes. to listen um well are you gonna say if you're squeamish you might not want to listen to well this. you might just want to suck on a sweet or something <laughs> or look out of the window or think about okay, something well, if happening. i look out of the window i just see a building site so Okay. Th- it's not massively reassuring. Okay, maybe th- think of something happy. Okay. Okay, fine. All right, fine. I continue. I'm in 1974. Good morning, good doctors. Brief missive after morning of medical delights. Yes. Perhaps leave my name out of this one. NHS Chichester treated me to a flexible cystoscopy investigation this morning. Pan to Dr. Kermode, looking up things on the internet. Yeah. Muttered oath and exclamation, oof, blimey, Charlie. So do you want to look that one up? Say it, just Hang on, say it to me again. Flexible. Hang on. Flexible, yeah. Cystoscopy. Sorry, C-Y-S. C-Y-S. Cystoscopy, yeah. I've got flexible cystoscopy. So he says... Hang on. Oh, blimey. What does it say? I'm not reading that out. Okay. You, you, Would you want me to read it out? Well, you, I think you can. Yes, I've given a little right. warning. A cystoscopy is a procedure that looks at the bladder and other parts of the urinary system. Yes. It involves inserting a special tube called a cystoscope into the urethra and then passing it through to the bladder. There are two types of cystoscope, rigid and flexible. I'll go with the flexible, don't you? I don't think... Who would want a rigid one? I'm not sure. That's a very... Anyway... <laughs> Are we still on air? Yeah, we're just, just started. 
Anyway, so our anonymous correspondent continues, headphones full of your dulcet witterings, and I managed to distract myself from the really rather personal indignities. <laughs> the genuine doctor and nurses, kind, calm and relaxed treatment assisted as well, although birdsong should have been played loudly. So thank you. I'd ask if there were more indelicate operations and procedures other churchgoers have powered through with your invaluable assistance, but I fear getting you taken off the air. You know, when you look it up, it, it, the, 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 the first thing that comes up is after it says, says it, the, the question, how painful is a cystoscopy? And mm-hmm. it says, people often fear that a cystoscopy will be painful, but it usually doesn't hurt. Tell your doctor or nurse if you feel any pain during it. It can be a bit uncomfortable. Well, it depends if you have a rigid or a flexible one, I would have thought. I think. Anyway, if, if any uh, medical staff would like to help us out on that, as to because there are two types of cystoscope and it would help to know what the difference was or why you would use one as opposed to the other. Thank you. You can email mayo at bbc.co.uk. No pictures. Uh, Jason King, but, oh, it's a famous name. Dear Docs, I'm contacting yourselves in reference to a fellow listener's email about watching films at double speed. Remember this from last week? Yes, I do. In fact, funnily enough, just this morning, I met the gentleman who emailed in outside outside the BBC. I mean, just weirdly, by coincidence, he came in to say... Was that Yannick? Uh, possibly. Uh, okay. Anyway, let, let me go through. Otherwise yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Do... And there's somebody else I met as well on the way in who I should tell you about when you f- finish this because it's also an interesting thing. Go. You're disrupting my no, entire disrupting. schedule. I'm not disrupting. I'm just adding to it. Go on. Uh, double speed and the disdain that Mark had for this practice. While I do agree with Mark that most yeah. films should be watched at their normal speed, I do have to confess to being guilty of this practice myself. A while back, I tried in vain to enjoy Terence Malick's The New World, but found it to be incredibly tedious. Yeah, much better at double speed. The only way I could get through this <laughs> was at double speed. And if you play Terence Malick's The New World at double speed, it looks like a normal film moving at normal speed. Yeah, the only way I could get through the long field scenes was to play them at double speed if that... Uh, if I hadn't, I'd still be watching them now. Yeah. Some rules are there to be broken. And when it came to the new world, I felt that my double speed rebellion was with merit. Thank you, Jason. It is also true that if you watch something like The Man from London, that again could be watched at double speed without without any loss, I think. And the aforementioned Yannick says, recently my colleague appeared on your uh, show and had an email read out. We, I met Yannick and his colleague, I think. We work together in a video production company and have a weekly video review thing with our entire team. Yeah. This is where I made the mistake of telling him about my video watching habits. For those not up to speed... With oh, no, so week, I, didn't, I didn't meet the gentleman who did it. I mean, anyway, carry on. For those not up to speed with last week's episode, I watch videos on double speed, pretty much always. This includes movies. My colleague, however, does not. I was not aware I had offended him so deeply and that I emotionally scarred him with my video-watching habits. They might be a tad strange, but there's a very good reason for this. I don't know what it is, but I just seem to be addicted to cramming as many useless things into my day as humanly possible. Oftentimes I find myself not having enough time anymore to watch a movie, but I do not wish to wait an entire day to start watching it. Here's where my brilliance comes into play, as, once again, I simply hit the settings button, and yes, I put it on double speed. This also applies to podcasts, YouTube videos, and if I could, the fatally slow commute through London. (laughs) Actually, if I could live my life at double speed, I would. Anyway, well, so that means that this podcast is going out at double speed. Um... Also, on yes. the way into work, I met the guy who set up our screen, who said, in reference to your question, how is it that the Bross movie can have been down of taking only £45, when we had several emails from people saying that they'd been to see it at least twice? The answer is, it's to do with uh, the point at which the accounts get updated, and it didn't. The Bross movie actually took around 30 grand. Excellent. So that explains that. It's More power to them. Yeah, fun. 
Box Office Top 10 in just a moment. You might remember this time last week, we had a particularly impassioned email from someone who works in a cinema, just talking about the general Yes, saying, poor can you please be nice to people working in cinemas because they are, you know, they're performing a, a valuable service. Exactly. Can you stop being so stroppy? So a very tired cinema usher emails in. I wish to remain anonymous. You had someone writing imploring for better behaviour from cinema goers and I wish to throw my two cents in. I've worked as cinema staff for many years in different venues and still do so, hence my wish for anonymity. And it's not an exaggeration to say I've seen it all. I've been yelled at more times than I care to count for offences ranging from asking people to not talk on their phones, films being sold out, not letting someone take a takeaway into a screen and not letting... Uh, someone take their 10-year-old into a 15-rated film. The latter has been particularly bad at times, having more than once been told, well, it's allowed in another country. (laughs) Right. By people not seeming to grasp the basic concept of how law works. (laughs) There was also one memorable incident when I wouldn't let a young person into a 15 film. And then an actor from the film itself happened to be there and started having a go at me to let them in. And whilst I told them... Uh, that him being in the film had no bearing on the rating. He persisted in bothering me until a supervisor let the kid in. I've been called a Nazi for asking to check a person's ticket. I've been called an idiot, ugly, worthless, and a few things that can't be mentioned on the radio. I've even had food food items thrown at me. This is all separate from a general lack of manners and inability to say please or thank you. Of course, there are lovely regulars as well, but the bad ones seem to be becoming more frequent. So to the people of Britain, I do ask you to treat your local cinema staff nicely and always commend good customer service when you see it, because this job can be a little thankless sometimes, although I know that as church members, all your listeners will hopefully know this already. However, I'm happy to say that such encounters have never diminished my love for film as a medium, just my faith in the general public. Yeah. So... Not much we can add to that other than they speak the truth. Yes. Be nice to them. Box office top 10 at 14, Assassination Nation. Which I liked. It's dark and satirical and it has something of the kind of comic book violence of kick-ass about it. But also I think it, it follows on thematically from a film like Unfriended in understanding the way in which, you know, social media and the internet can work. And uh, and I thought it was, I, I really liked it. And I, when I was watching it, there's a, there was a moment I thought, wow, this is, this is really subversive. Yeah, I liked it a lot. <clears throat> uh, Bryn in Milton Keynes. Just got back from seeing Assassination Nation at my local multiplex and my word does it resonate. I am 21 and therefore the first generation that has grown up with social media yeah. uh, being a big presence at school. This film dives straight to the heart of the worst that the internet can do, but at the same time is sadly uh, that is at the same time sadly relatable to people of my age. Everyone growing up knew of someone whose personal privacy was breached for the whole school to see. Rumours have developed into pictures, and once they're out, they cannot be deleted. Some films have tried to address this, but always ended up blaming the victim. Assassination Nation understands the reasons why teenagers believe they have to do certain things to be the perfect human that everyone portrays themselves as on social media. As Lily says, any negative comment on a photo makes self-esteem even lower than it already was. I would urge anyone, particularly from my generation, that they need to see this film as a portrayal of where our society is. It is scarily close to home. Thank you. Very good. Very good. Hito uh, Kunioka. I found the film to be shockingly and frustratingly all over the place. Oh, okay. I like the concept and the four leads have great chemistry, but once it became an unexpected purge sequel, I got bored pretty quickly. Uh, I wonder what it would have looked like if it had been written and directed by a woman. 
Daniel Green, I really enjoyed Assassination Nation. Not sure what genre it is, but I don't think that mattered. Highlight was the marching band playing a Miley Cyrus song. Yeah, which is extraordinary. That's the kind of that's the, 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 the finale credits, and that's really, really strange. Shoplifters at 11. Which I really liked. So this is um, Hirokazu Koreeda's uh, film that was the unexpected uh, Palm d'Or prize winner at Cannes earlier this year. It's a story about a, a, a family who's you're not sure at first exactly what their relationships are, whether it is indeed mother, father and children or what. And at the beginning, you see the father and somebody that you assume to be the father's son shoplifting. And really what it's about is marginalised characters, you know, eking out an existence on the edge of society. But it's also about what constitutes a family. And one of the things that it reminded me of is that Kurt Vonnegut in that book, Cat's Cradle, wrote about the charis. He said the idea of the charis, which is people to whom you are, deeply connected even though you may not obviously realize it there may not be any kind of obvious earthly connection he, he argued that the charis was um, was a stronger bond than the family and actually weirdly enough i think this uh, this coriander film feeds right into that uh, ben smith says having been completely beguiled by coriander's film since watching i wish probably off the back of mark's oh, review i loved i wish i went to see shoplifters at the watershed in bristol yesterday slightly concerned that my, cinema that my expectations were unreasonably high i need to worry because shoplifters is an absolute gem it is there's a purity to the way coriander's film approaches its characters and invites us into their lives that immediately called to mind one of my other standout films of this year leave no trace which for me is still my favorite film of this year both completely as you plodding expository dialogue and have this confidence to let the way the characters are written and performed convey what we need to know. Yeah. By choosing such, let's say, morally flexible protagonists and forcing us to question the actions of these people, we can't help but want to like. I think Curryader has elevated this approach to new heights and produced an intimate, absorbing and affecting masterpiece. And what's really interesting is that the story that he's telling could equally be told as a crime thriller or a horror story. And it's, it's the approach that he takes. But there are times when you're watching it when you actually have to remind yourself what the nature of the narrative is. And I, th- I thought that was really remarkable. Uh, at 10, Planeta Singly. Now, I haven't seen this because it wasn't press shown, but it is a Polish romantic comedy. If we have any uh, emails about them, that'd be nice to get. Uh, Mayo at bbc.co.uk. If you've seen Planeta Singly, we would like to hear from you. At 9, Nutcracker and the Four Realms. Crazy go nuts and all over the place. Two different directors, at least two different scripts, but held together by Kira Knightley being funny. Number 8, A Star is Born. I mean... I love it. You love it. Funnily enough, I, I keep meeting people now who who are picking holes in it and say, oh, yeah, I saw it. And, and I think partly that's a kind of backlash thing uh, because it's been, you know, it's been so heavily uh, uh, Oscar tipped. But I do think it's really good. I think it's great. Uh, Widows at seven. Fantastic. And uh, I was talking to Jason. I did the Projectionist Awards earlier on this week. Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs. Did you say hello to him on behalf of everybody? I did. So it was the Cinema Technology Awards, the Projectionist Awards, as they used to be called. And Jason was one of the co-presenters. And we had a discussion about widows and about you know our sort of differing views of it and one of the things that that uh, that many people have said is you know it should have been a tv series (laughs) it's like all that stuff you can't get it into a film it should have been a tv series obviously said with a you know with a knowing thing jason is completely he didn't jason didn't say that but jason is completely wrong about widows is he well he has an analysis of it that's that's not mine so it's completely wrong oh okay yeah exactly more fool him (laughs) uh six is the girl in the spider's web which I mean, I think both you and I are on the same page about this. It's the film itself is flawed. And if it weren't for Claire Foy, it would have a much harder job winning the audience over. Um, But I think Claire Foy goes an awfully long way to dragging you into what is essentially 
a kind of Mission Impossible James Bond plot. I mean, it was interesting in the interview that you did with Claire Foy, she said, I don't want people to talk about Lisbeth Salander as a superhero, which is all well and good. But the movie does present her riding around on motorbikes and in cars and, and falling off things in, in the manner of, of Batman. Simon Humphrey says, uh, whilst I don't think there was anything terribly wrong about it, it fails to excel in any way, except for perhaps Claire Foy, who does well with what she's given. I'm a huge fan of the Fincher version of Dragon Tattoo, and this pales in comparison in too many ways. There's no real tension or mystery, no depth, and the characters just fall flat, particularly in the recasting of Daniel Craig with an actor who, whilst he wasn't bad, just was very bland. Uh, All in all, it's fine for a single watch. Nothing here warrants a repeat viewing. Uh, Daniel Bell in Sirencester, the trailer had piqued the good lady wife's interests that filled me with a bit of unease. I've read all three of the original books and the two subsequent novels, loved the Swedish movies, tolerated the Daniel Craig version, but the trailer seemed to be showing bits I must have missed in the book. Trailer, as we mentioned last week, shows everything. Shows pretty much everything. Accepting a certain artistic license when making these films, I went to our local all you can eat cinema chain, only to be greeted with a film that was as much in keeping with irritating uh, with the book as Peter Rabbit movie was to Beatrix Potter. I can now understand Mark's frustration with the irritating rabbit. I found the film just about watchable, but I found it hard to separate the story that had been brilliantly painted in my head uh, from the book to a completely different story that was loosely based on just part of the the novel. And James Pardon, that's James James Pardon. Pardon. He's had that all his life. Yeah, that must drive him nuts. How typical of us to just make it. in and do it anyway. The film felt very slow in pace and often, dare I say, boring, with injections of action inevitably involving the protagonist Lisbeth's magical phone and the Hack Everything app. (laughs) However, my fellow cinema goers found it a bit too dull and I was taken out of the film by not one but two gentlemen snoring at the same time. Initially, I thought it was part of the film as the sound was coming from both directions. Stereo snoring for James Pardon. Thank you, James. Uh, so uh, Spider's Web is at six. Nativity Rocks at five. It's one of the better ones. I mean, I think if, if you had to do it in order, Nativity 1 is the best. Nativity 2 is the second best. Nativity... Three, no, no, Nativity 1 is the best. Nativity 4 is the second best. Nativity 2 is the third best. And Nativity 3 is the worst. OK, that's neat. Thank you. That's um, neat, that's neat, that's neat. I really love your tiger feet. Yeah. I thought The Cat Crept In was actually better than Tiger Feet. I, the Cat I Crept In was the one that I bought, although it doesn't make any sense. No, of course not. The Cat Crept In, crept out again. Cat Crept In, crept out again. He opened the door and did something that had more at the end of it. It's just like, what? what? Just put the cat in. Or, like... If you're under 50, these are the hits of mud, <laughs> by the way. Um, Robin Hood's at four. <laughs> okay, Bohemian Rhapsody at three. Have you got any? Have you got any correspondence no. about Robin Hood? Okay, for well, there we are. Okay, uh, I'm well. I'm a big fan of Bohemian Rhapsody, despite all the liberties that it takes. I thought it was great, and I thought Rami Malek was was really good. Uh, the Grinch is at number two. Much less so for me. I, you know, I, I, passable fare for a slightly more undemanding audience, but it's not bringing anything new to the table. It's not terrible, but it's it's just fairly unremarkable. Um, Abigail. De, oh, Bal, oh, I knew I was going to get this wrong. Apologies, Abby. So, Abby is Abigail de, de Obaldia Fletcher. Okay, that's a lovely name. name. Thank you, Abby, for tolerating this. Upon listening to 
Lucy the Grinch, this is from last week's program. Yes. To Lucy the Grinch's recounting her, of her experience watching the Grinch last week, I feel the need to join her in a mark of solidarity and share my own Grinch-related horror story. This is a story from last week where Lucy had felt more Grinch-like at the end of the screening than at the beginning in a reversal of what the classic yeah. Grinch twist is because of the behaviour in the cinema. My wife and I being true children at heart, journeyed to our local cineplex in Huntingdon to watch a Tuesday night showing at 8.30. Certain there would be no families or screaming toddlers at such a time and confident we'd be able to watch the film with other like-minded kiddos. Upon seeing one other family with two children in the cinema, my heart sank a little, but remained hopeful that it would be a relatively uneventful cinema trip. As the lights dimmed and I prepared myself for Yellow is the New Black... The name of which was the most amusing part of the whole experience. Is that the short? That's the short, the, yes. that's the Minion short, which actually, it, I have to say, that was the point at which I thought, mm. because it was the first Minions thing, Minion short that I haven't just laughed my head off at. Uh, the horror began, says Abby, as I saw approaching from my peripherals one of said children's bare feet, which proceeded to rest just six, six inches from my face on the seat next to me. I turned around. Mum and Dad are happily flicking through their phones, crunching on that most considerate of cinema snacks, chilli heatwave Doritos, while the two children argued over which of them was Max and which was the Grinch. As I sat full of despair with my chair being kicked and my face full of foot, I reached several conclusions. One, it's far too awkward to move seats now that the film has started. Two, this film isn't even worth it. Three, I should have listened to Mark. (laughs) Kind regards from the traumatised and exhausted Obaldia Fletcher. It's it's, ne- it's never too much trouble to move seats. Yeah, I mean that was the obvious scenario. If you've got a kid's f- yeah, foot just, in your face, just move. And you and you people don't you think I can't because they'll know that I'm moving because of them. Go, so, well, fine. Uh, the number one movie and it's very number one. Fantastic Beasts: The Crimes of Grindelwald. Let me just um, hurtle through some correspondence. So you've gone for the V now. No, actually, I, I think I think I'm a were rather than a V. But you just said Grindelwald. I know. And... I'm, there's a lack of consistency in my pronunciation. Of this. Yes, you should you should make a decision and stick with it. I'm going to go with Grindelwald. Okay. Uh, this is from Finley. Finley says, I'm 14. I really enjoyed the Harry Potters, really enjoyed the first presumably Fantastic Beast film. I went to watch the second film last weekend, really enjoyed it, loved all the references, had to explain the goings on of the film to the rest of my family because they did get a bit confused. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Tom Lovelace in Barcelona. Over the summer, I had the absolute privilege of being an extra in Fantastic Beasts 2. I could wax lyrical about my day on the set at Warner Brothers Studios, but that's best left for another time. As I've just moved to Barcelona, I recently went to see the film at my local Cine Verdi, which showed the film in English. I managed to spot myself in the first minute as one of Johnny Depp's prison guards, which has... As a lifelong Potter fan, was an absolute joy. Unfortunately, that was where the film peaked for me. <laughs> the remainder was there. Co- go. That was me. I saw convoluted, confusing, and mainly disappointing. I don't often spend my time disagreeing with eleven-year-olds because I'm thirty, but I disagree with Bethan's email last week when she said it's a film for any Harry Potter fan who knows their stuff. I'm slightly embarrassed to say when it comes to Harry Potter, I do know my stuff very well, but still struggle to buy into or understand exactly what was going on throughout. The creation of an Obscurus, which is Ezra Miller's character, Mm -hmm. for this series just seemed like an excuse to show off some impressive CGI. Jude Law's Dumbledore aside, I didn't think there were a great many positives to take from it, unfortunately. This will, of course, not deter me from recommending my friends and family from going to see me make my big screen debut. It's all about me, Tom Lovelace, uh, who's in Barcelona. 
Lorna Wood, this uh, weekend went to see Fantastic Beasts. No real expectations, no knowledge of what people thought of the film. Have to say I was surprised by the level of hatred towards it, but I do understand to an extent. I grew up with the books and even in my early 30s will always enjoy a new helping of the wizarding world. However, I have to say I spent the whole film quite confused because the plot itself was Doctor Who level complicated. Visually, it was a beautiful film and I sat in my big comfy chair really enjoying it, but I think that was because I was letting the familiar wash over me. To be honest, I have no idea what happened, but yay, Hogwarts. <laughs> so that's uh, some that of the... That was me- funnily enough because you and I saw it in the same screening room. Yes. And there was a yay, Hogwarts moment, wasn't there? When it was like... Yes. The music is back. Yeah. You're back in the very familiar buildings and it's all looking rather Shall wonderful. Shall I tell you what it reminded me of? Which, is, which is, I mean, it sounds like a bizarre connection, but... I know that you, you you never saw Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, but no. Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, which is the 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 uh, pre- the prequel to the Twin Peaks TV series, so it leads up to uh, you know the, it's the last seven days of, of Laura Palmer, and there is a moment. There's a whole bit at the beginning in which we sort of see a version of the story somewhere else, and blah blah blah, and it's really David Lynchy. It's incredibly confusing and. People don't know who anybody is, and David Bowie turns up and says, "We're not going to talk about you." And it's, it's all, right. and then there's a moment when when Carl McLachlan says, "I think it's no, it's not Carl McLachlan. Somebody else says it's going to happen again. I don't know where, and I don't know when." And then it goes boom, boom, and and it cuts to Twin Peaks, and you you feel a whole audience who have literally up until that point eighty percent of them have been going, "What, what?" They go boom, boom. Oh, fine. Here we are, and we're back. And there, it's a, it is a really strange thing how that can happen. You know, you, you suddenly, and it's exactly the Hogwarts moment in, um, in Grindelwald. But no matter how baffly waffly it has been up until that point, you hear that the, 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 the music starts to do that thing, and you see the Hogwarts, the familiar outline, and you go. <sighs> okay. Do you not agree with that? I well, I think I, I think I did. It's just, it's just, you end up wanting more. That's what you, you. Yes, no. I mean, I think there are. I think we are agreed that there are long sections of the film in which it is, it it is unnecessarily plotty, explainy, and, and in a way that that just does feel like getting a lot of pieces in order for the next film. But I I thought it was redeemed by the final by the final section, which worked for me. So it's two thirty seven. Uh, earlier, we were speaking rather uncomfortably about cystoscopies. We have uh, we accompanied a listener as they went through theirs. and It's not in person. No, that's right. We were just chatting away mindlessly while this person was at NHS Exeter and had a flexible cystoscopy. And we were talking about the difference between flexible and hard cystoscopy. And Dr P from, appropriately enough, I suppose, from Anaesthetist's Annex <laughs> says, in answer to your query, a flexible cystoscopy is done under local anaesthetic and because it uses a flexible scope is not terribly uncomfortable. I'm told. The rigid cystoscope is used when the flexible scope doesn't give a good enough view or if one needs to do things inside the bladder like take biopsies. The rigid scope, and this is heavily edited, the rigid scope requires a general or spinal anaesthetic. Actually, what Dr P actually says is the rigid scope very definitely requires a general or spinal anaesthetic. Anyway, keep up the good work. Thank you, Dr P. Moving on. You OK? <laughs> Uh, so yes, we sh- we shall we yeah. shall move on. Uh, do some uh, Peter Jackson conversation. Yes, please. Is that what you're waiting yes, for? Yes, please. Okay. Favorite bird? I'm not telling you. 
I've got another email. <laughs> just get from on. Just Sanix. get on with it. Sure. Yes. Okay. So let's talk Mortal Engines, uh, the film based on Philip Reeves' novel from 2001. I have been talking to the film's producer and co-writer, Peter Jackson. We'll hear from him after this clip featuring Robert Sheehan as Tom Natsworthy, Layla George as Catherine Valentine, and first, Hugo Weaving as Thaddeus Valentine. Don't underestimate what's buried out there in the salt flats. These, these mining towns have a way of digging up really interesting... old tech. No way. What is that? That is a fusion inverter cell. Incredibly rare and really dangerous. And you know the Guild of Engineers nicked all the ones we had in store at the museum just a few months ago. Pomeroy was furious. Well, they won't get their hands on this one. I'll make sure it's disposed of properly. Engineers, eh? They think they run the place. They don't know what they're playing with. Fire. Sorry? They're playing with fire. And that is a clip from Mortal Engines. I'm delighted to say I've been joined by its producer and co-writer, who is none other than Peter Jackson. How are you doing, Peter? I'm doing great, thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you very much, Steve, for joining us. Um, this is uh, this is going to take some explanation. So tell us tell us about the film. Tell us just dip us slightly into the world of Mortal Engines. It's a, a movie that's based on a book written by Philip Reeve, who's is actually the first book in a series of four, and it's set uh, about three thousand years into the future. And it's a time when the uh, societies have adopted a rather different mode of operating than today, where the, um, there is no more countries, there's no borders. What there is, though, is, is, is there's city-states on wheels roaming around consuming each other. Standard procedure, really. Yes. So, so you have enormous what are called traction cities, and these things, you've got to imagine they're like the size of seven football fields, all sort of end on end, like these huge, carrying thousands of people. And they're cities, and they have the big ones chase the small ones. They consume them by opening up the jaws and, and dragging them in. And they use them. They use the actual city that they capture for fuel to, to keep the engines going. And the people on the cities they capture are sort of absorbed into the societies. It's a sort of a pro-immigration film. Is that right? In a way. <laughs> well, it's, you could say that. I mean, sort of. There's one moment where, <laughs> where I think it's Hugo Weaving who says, I knew it would be a mistake coming into Europe. And I was thinking, oh, it's a Brexit film, actually. That's what it is. But you probably it could didn't be anything think. you, want, you yeah. want it to be. Yes, I know. I know. I, I mean, we did, that was a line that we did, a rather cheeky line that we put in there <laughs> uh, deliberately, I have to admit. It, it's not in Philip's book. Although, although the whole the concept is, yeah. is in Philip's book. I read the book in 2001, 2002. I interviewed. Philip, uh, and instantly Philip, as as of course generations have done because it's such a wonderful concept and Philip Reeve is a wonderful world builder in his Mm. books. And uh, you get sort of like three or four chapters in and think there's no way this could be filmed. You know, this is just, it's it's because this idea of predator cities. You see, uh, I was the opposite. I got three or four chapters in and thought, wow, it'd be a great film. Well, I was going to ask you, because (laughs) at what stage did you hear about them? When you're going through these, is, is there something that instantly clicks and you go, this is gold. I don't really seek out films to make. I've got films that I, that I do want to make that people ask me to make, you know, another Tintin film, The Dam Busters. I've got plenty of films that people are waiting on and, um, and they're all films that I want to make one day. Um, so I'm not really look, looking for films. The books were were recommended to me. I never read them when they first, I guess, when he published them. I read them in about 2008, by which case there was four books. 
And so I was able to binge on them, like a good Netflix show. I, I, was, I read the first one and then straight to the second, third, the fourth. So I was on board with the idea of doing a film based on you know, the entire saga of Tom and Hess's life. And quite about the rights thinking that they were probably you know had already taken because i realized that i was you know this was not when the books first came out i was i was coming on as a late comer but they were available and so 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 we secured the rights back about two, 2008 i think it was you mentioned hester shaw who's the mm-hmm. uh, who's the the heroine in this played mm. by is it hera hillman here hera because a lot of it is basically her story just to explain a little bit about who she is and and how we follow her through this tale. Yes, she is really the person, she's a, sort of the catalyst for these stories. Hera Helmer, I mean, the character she plays, Hester Shaw, she's a very damaged character, which is what I, what I actually like too. She's not your normal Hollywood hero. As a young girl, her mother was brutally killed. She was um, injured and carries the scars of, of the attack. And she was basically an orphan because her father had long since died. She was alone in the wilderness trying to escape from the man who killed her mother. And she's picked up by a, what you'd best describe as a homicidal half-man, half-robot called Shrike. It's very dangerous. The last person on earth you'd ever want to encounter. But as it is, Shrike, who's been engineered from a corpse, a human corpse, um, 500 years earlier, um, this is a very complex story, isn't it? Shrike, who was engineered from, well, from a corpse and his memory wiped, is starting to get... He's the last stalkers to survive because there used to be armies of these things and there's no longer... They've all gone, but there's just one survivor. And he's starting to get flashes of his memory of a human life that he once had. And he was a father of a, of a young girl as a human being. And so he sees this... This um, he sees this young Hester Shaw who's just escaped from the um, person that murdered her mother, seen her mother killed, and he takes her on. He is a sort of a sort of a, a parental instinct kicks in, and Hester was basically raised for the next uh, ten years by this very unusual character called Shrike. She comes out of that being a rather you know having had a very um, challenging upbringing, yes. one could say, and, and what she's obsessed with as a character is she wants to hunt down the man who killed her mother. And that's where her paths intersect with the London Traction City because this character is on the city. And, but, of course, things don't go according to plan, as they never of course. do. When you were setting up the... I don't know if you have rules and guidelines for how this film is going to feel and how it's going to look. Uh, just in terms of describing it, mm. is it, it's not, it kind of is steampunk, but it isn't. And it is analogue... I don't know what, yeah, what, no, no, what, sure. what yeah, were the yeah. what were the guidelines that you well we didn't we didn't really want to go steampunk particularly because to me steampunk's a particular it's like a Jules Verne genre steampunk is like the science fiction as for the Victorian times you know and I think it's cool but we wanted to make the film as realistic as we could so we didn't want to have it stylized in the way that it would be stylized if it was if we went sort of down the steampunk road and Philip Reeves books do somewhat go down the steampunk road because what I think what's important is when you're dealing with something that's this, this fantastical. And you're asking people to believe that there can be a, a thousand foot long city on wheels chasing another one. You want to somehow, in the middle of all that, try to try to make it as realistic as you possibly can, which is sort of crazy because it's the most unrealistic thing in the world. So you you just start to do every trick in the book to make it feel real. And we have a, a team of designers and who do a fantastic job at coming up with ideas of how these things would look. And it certainly is an analog. I mean, the film doesn't take place in a world where they can make silicon chips anymore. That technology is long since gone and forgotten, and they wouldn't. Have have a clue how to make a silicon chip. It's back to the analog world again, but much more advanced because we abandoned analog what 1980s or the 1990s, and this is a, an imagining of what it would be like.
like if the analog tech had carried on and you know, you know and developed to its natural conclusion rather than being cruelly cut short in the way we did. Which is why old tech is so prized in this film. Yes. Part of the story, obviously, is that, is that the reason why the society is so different in 3,000 years' time is that there was a huge um, cataclysmic war that takes place very soon in our future. So it's long in the past in, this, in terms of the movie, but it's called the 60-minute war, and it's when countries start to fire these weapons at each other. And so what the 60-minute war is based on is this um, technology that's not nuclear. The 60-minute war probably takes place in about 100 years from now. And so, they, and so they've developed even worse weapons than nuclear weapons. They've developed quantum energy weapons, which are very destructive and Sure enough, the world is basically destroyed and most of the people on it. And so this society has risen from the ashes of that. But there is old tech, what they call old tech, um, that they're forever digging up. And some of it is for museum purposes. They find old cell phones and they don't know what really what they are. They find normal, mundane things of our world. And because they don't have records anymore, they don't really have the actual the knowledge of what our world was. They're trying to figure it out from the bits and pieces that they dig out of the ground. But amongst the things that they dig up are fragments of the quantum energy weapons. And most people don't know what they are and they're all in bits and pieces, but there is... Um, certainly one or two characters in the story who decide that they could possibly put one of these weapons back together again if they get enough bits and pieces. When you got excited by the four books, did you all... I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that you produced it and and co-wrote it. Was that always what you wanted to do? Were you going to direct it at any stage? Was it quite nice not directing it? Uh, Well, yes, yes, to answer all those questions, yes, yes and yes. (laughs) When I got the the rights of the books, we were just in the middle of, or towards the end of finishing off um, District 9 and Tintin, two movies that I was producing, other directors. But it was a very, very busy time, so we got the rights, and Mortal Engines was going to be the film that I'd move on to after we were done with those other two projects. And we did a little bit of work on it. We, that moment arrived, and we decided to do some design. Previs hadn't quite started working on the script, and then The Hobbit came along, which was unexpected, really, because the, the rights were a bit tied up, and, but um, Warner's managed to clear the rights. And as soon as they did, the sort of the pressure was on to, for us to do The Hobbit. So we, we had to put that uh, the Mortal Engines project, which I was looking forward to, to doing, that had gone to shelf for six years. And during the course of the six years making the three Hobbit movies, um, Christian Rivers, who is a person that's worked with us for 25 years um, as a storyboard artist and then a previous artist, and he's done visual effects, he did animation, won an Academy Award on King Kong, and um, you know he's really been part of our team and over the course of the 25 years has been doing you know more and more tricky and important work for us. And I know that he's always wanted to direct, and so during The Hobbit I had him come on board as a second unit director, and he did some very tricky scenes. Uh, the second Hobbit movie has the dwarves escaping in barrels down the river, which is quite a long sequence, and that's pretty much... Christian sequence. So I was watching him shoot this stuff, you know, and obviously getting the results of what he was shooting, and I thought it was fantastic stuff. I liked the way that he was working on set, and I knew that he wanted to make a, a feature film next uh, after The Hobbit. And I just really didn't want him to go off and do the feature film with some, some with some, somebody else, because I thought that he's part of our team. He's worked for so long, and that somehow I should be part of the film he made. I, want, I wanted to help him, and I knew that he would make a great film. So um, it, it all came together. The Hobbit was finished. We were bringing our attention back to this particular project again, and Christian was there ready to direct his first film. Just in our last couple of minutes, Peter, I just wanted to, to mention They Should Not Grow Old, which comes out on DVD. We have been inundated with, uh, as I'm sure you've had many thousands mm. of letters from people who've been so touched by, uh, by that. Mm. And I just wanted to mention just one here, yep. which is typical uh, of many. Isabel Hansen, and she wanted this to go to you. My great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather and my two great-great-uncles were killed in the First World War. Oh. An armistice day always fills me with sadness. 
when I think of their deaths. After watching Peter Jackson's film, I was genuinely surprised to feel uplifted. There were scenes of horror and tragedy, but there was also insight into life away from the front line and the amazing camaraderie between the men. The narrative provided by the veterans made me realise that the soldiers were completely lacking in self-pity and were motivated by their belief in doing the right thing. Heartfelt thanks to Peter Jackson for making this astonishing film. That's great. It's, um, I mean, one thing that I always think of... I mean, it's, I mean, it's a lovely thing to hear, but the film is very much the story of the men who survived. And I do always just pause every now and again and think, well, if the if we had interviews, obviously, which we don't, from the million or so British Empire men that were killed, they would probably tell us a slightly different story. You know what I mean? So I think it is important. Look, I'm really, I'm really happy to hear because there is a humanity amongst these people, whether they lived or died. There is a, there is a camaraderie, and that's what I really wanted to tell the, tell the human story. I, I'm not a, a historian. I don't pretend to be. So I didn't want to, to sort of mimic what an historian would do. There's lots of documentaries that have involved um, historians, lots of books. I just wanted to tell a story from a normal average person based on the humanity of these of these people. And that's why we took out all the references to dates and places. And it's a very small world. And this, this war affected so many people because you can go to a very small area in the Somme uh, near Beaumont Hamill and within about half a mile in this particular area, you have the place where my grandfather was uh, went over the top and was machine gunned, and, and, and he did ultimately survive, but he was hit on, the, on July the 1st. Um, Christian Rivers, the director of our film, has a great uncle in the Gordon Highlanders who was killed in, in November, and his grave is there. And my partner, Fran Walsh, who co-wrote our movie, her great uncle um, was killed in May 1918, and he's buried very close by. So you, well, can so, I just say, my, so, my great uncle was killed in 1917 there as well. Yeah, so, yeah, so it is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, just has profoundly affected these, you know, all of our, all of the empire countries. Are, the effect of the First World War, certainly in New Zealand, is far more powerful than the Second War for some reason. It's like it's, it changed the country in a way that the Second World War didn't. Peter Jackson, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Peter Jackson is just one of those. I know you spent a lot of time with him. You've interviewed him many times. Yeah. You did an on stage uh, with him for They Should Not Grow Old. Yeah, when they did the premiere. Just yeah. think, wouldn't it be great to spend a day with Peter Jackson? He just has so many things to say, so yeah. many movies to talk about. Every kind of sentence has a few insights. You just want to go, hang on, hang on, whoa, whoa, whoa. can we go back a bit? The first time I ever interviewed him was when Bad Taste came out, and it was released over here by a small um, distributor called Blue Dolphin. And I interviewed him in the, the hotel that's just next door to where we are here on the top floor when there's like a cafe or a restaurant, whatever you call it. And he was just this guy who'd made this movie Bad Taste, which is this very uh, very scrungy sort of horror movie. And the thing I remember most clearly was I was asking him about how he did the same, because it was literally made on a kitchen table over a period of years, over so many years, that during the course of making the film, one of the cast members got married and became religious and decided that they didnn't want to be involved in this scrungy horror movie. And so one of the characters literally changes halfway through from one actor to another. And I was asking him how he did the gore sound effects. And he said, well, you just get yogurt and you squish it between your hands. And then he started demonstrating. And I just, I've got this tape still, because I interviewed him for the enemy of Peter Jackson all those years ago going... <laughs> 
showing me how to squish yogurt between your hands you to go. make squelchy horror movie effects. I think that's called spot effects, isn't it? Spot effects. Yeah, that was called. Very good. One. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Mortal Engines comes out in a couple of weeks' time, and Mark will review it. I will. Uh, I haven't it. seen it yet, so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so five and a half minutes to three o'clock. Here's something that is out. So Roma, which is the new film by Alfonso Cuarón, which is inspired to some extent by his own childhood memories, sees him returning to uh, to Mexico, um, set in seventy seventy one, a household in the titular district in the Colonia Roma, uh, where a mother is raising her children while her husband is increasingly an absent presence. <clears throat> Meanwhile, um, a domestic help Cleo basically looks after the house and the family, and she, in fact is pretty much the focus of the film. We see her tending the kids. We see her swabbing the floors. We see her doing the washing. We see her performing the work that is that is never done. And the mother and the maid could not be from, you know, more different backgrounds. And yet during the course of this... I mean, on the one hand, it is an epic drama because it has real sort of epic sweep to it, but it is also very, very intimate. It is about, you know, a family, a, a sort of a, a group of people. During the course of the movie, they both encounter oddly similar problems based on, on one level, the inconstancy of men. Both of them are let down by and you know, ab- either abandoned or betrayed by the men in their lives. Meanwhile, in the background, huge political upheavals are happening in the country and these upheavals mirror the domestic traumas that are going on. It's a really remarkable film. <clears throat> the most remarkable thing about it is, I suppose, the visual style is that it's shot in you know widescreen monochrome with a camera that appears to be like a kind of floating, all-seeing eye. What we get is the story told in long takes, you know, so the action happens in something you know like real time within each individual take. You see conversations play out in long takes, and during this, the camera will pan, will glide slowly back and forth through the action, no matter how frenetic the action itself actually becomes. I mean, there are scenes of characters walking past marching street bands. There's scenes of riots. There's a scene in which there's an earthquake. There's a scene of raging, raging sea. But the camera just retains this kind of floating, slightly um, slightly removed uh, look to it. And in one sequence, in more than one sequence, the camera revolves all the way around as if to show us the totality of this world that's been that's been created. And there are times that the extraordinary uh, visuals of the film can appear distracting. I mean, one of the things that happens is that the, the sequences are so brilliantly choreographed that it, you know what what the film is able to do is to tell a really complicated story through one shot. I mean, there's one sequence in which we see two women go into a furniture store and then out of the window of the furniture store, they see this uh, this melee breaking out in the street that then comes into the furniture and it's all done in, in one shot. And occasionally there was a part of me that thought, I'm so overwhelmed by how technically impressive this is that it's making me think, God, what a technological achievement, which is strange because actually it is a very, very personal film. And, um, you know, so it's a peculiar quibble to say that the virtuosity of something sometimes distracts. And I think also that may be a function of if you're a film critic, you kind of you end up looking at technique and 
you know, it's like when somebody said, when you notice the editing, it means the editing is, is bad. When in the case of this, it's entirely possible. If I if I if I was if I wasn't watching it professionally, I wouldn't even have noticed those things. The other thing is, it's a Netflix back release, but it is getting a th- proper theatrical release. And there's often this question about whether or not you should see something in the cinema or see something on the small screen. And I'm you know I'm I'm open to all different suggestions. But usually, when people say you should see something in the cinema, they mean because because of the visuals. Although the visuals in this film are astonishing, the thing that really should get you into the cinema is the soundscape, because they have worked so intensively on the soundscape. It's one of those films you can watch with your ears, because there are there's this incredibly dense Atmos soundscape in which you can hear stuff going on in the streets in the background, you can hear intimate conversations, you hear ambient noise. I mean, the sound really puts you right there in, in the middle of this world. There are hints of Fellini stylistically, but it's it's definitely Quaron's film. It's a totally personal project. I mean, you know, he wrote it, he, it, he shot it. It's They shot it in sequence, so it was played out, you know, so each character you know, came to each event after the previous event. People only found out what the full nature of the script was as the project evolved. And it feels like a really, really personal thing. So it's a it's a strange kind of combination of a very personal film with an extraordinary technical prowess that I think is quite remarkable. I, I do need to see it again, definitely, because like I said, the first time round, there was the one thing that slightly threw me was being taken out of it slightly by marvelling at the technical virtuosity of it. When for a film as personal as this... I felt that what I should be was just engulfed in it. So was it too good? Was it too no, it's smart? Not that, it's not that it's, uh, it's not that it, that's what I was trying to say. It's not that it's too good. It's just that there were times when I went, wow, I can't imagine how they choreographed that shot. And I need to see it again, just and not think about any of that stuff. It's very good. It, it's called Roma, Roma, and it's an early contender for Movie of the Week. More details to come, including reviews of these films. Uh, we're going to be reviewing Creed 2. We're going to be reviewing uh, Surviving Christmas with the Relatives and Three Identical Strangers. 53 minutes before uh, we're done. Lots of movie conversation and your reaction. If you just joined us, you missed Peter Jackson. You also just missed uh, Mark's review of Roma, which has caused Grant Park to write. Oh, um, it's caused. That was really fast. Yes. Well, this came in a couple of days ago. Oh, then I didn't cause. Oh, Roma caused him. I think you said my review caused him to write. No, Roma. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. I got it. Grant says, I'm a colonial commoner. I saw Roma a few months back at the Adelaide Film Festival. There hasn't been a day passed since... <clears throat> excuse me, where one of its scenes hasn't replayed in my head. That's interesting. This is why I love cinema. What a masterpiece. The performances, story and filmmaking are the form executed at its highest level. The film is almost entirely made up of a series of long and panning single shots. Exactly as we said. That play out like small films in themselves, both epic and intimate, and often at the same in time. In fact, that phrase, did, did, that was almost exactly the phrase that I used. The composition, the composition, beauty and choreography of these shots. Choreography. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is just weird. I hadn't heard this before. Go on. And the small dramas that played out within them made my heart ache in a good way, with some feeling like iconic documentary photography brought to life. Yeah. It pains me to think this film will ever be viewed on a phone or a small screen. However, this view is conflicted by the knowledge that it's only through working with Netflix and the freedom Alfonso was provided by them that such a work even exists. In saying that, if ever there was a film made to be seen in a cinema, this is it. If you care about film, seek it out on the biggest screen possible. I mean that. Well, I agree with everything that was said. In that it is uncanny, actually, how many, uh, how much what you said resonated with what what I said in my review. 
The thing about seeing it in the cinema... You've trade them well. Yes, I know, but, the, but the thing about seeing it in the cinema is people often think that the, that the reason to see it in the cinema is because, you know, the, it, it's primarily to do with the picture. And I think this is a, a really impressive-looking film and, and the way in which those slow pans, slow glides happen is something that, that, that looked wonderful on the big screen. But the sound is is a really big part. Now, I know that some people have brilliantly set up sound systems in their homes. I also know that a lot of people don't. And uh, the cinema that I saw this in had a really good sound system, had a really good sound system. And you got the full Dolby Atmos experience in which you literally felt, particularly during those crowd scenes, and you you felt you were right in there. And and I did that that thing, which I, at one point I closed my eyes to hear it, just just, you know, for 10 seconds or so, because... You, the sound was what absolutely put me right in the middle of the film. Often we mention on the show Rory Kethlin Jones, who's his technology correspondent, yes. who kind of wanders around and peers, you know, often on a quiet day and he's got nothing else to do. Yeah. So he peers in through the glass and sees if there's anything more interesting happening in the studio, like he's tidying up. And we've made a few references to him. Anyway, another member of his family has been in touch. Oh, yes. Because this comes from Francesca Kethlin Jones. All right. Huh? Mark and Simon, I'm currently 31 weeks pregnant. I came home from work one day last week and on reflecting on the day was worried that my baby hadn't moved around as much as I'm used to. Instead of following the advice to drink something cold, lie down and count kicks, my husband and I decided to put on one of Abba's albums. <laughs> Within two or three tracks, my baby was happily kicking, kicking along away. and I was able to relax. Thank there you so are. much for bringing this phenomenon to our attention. On a film-related note, watching A Quiet Place recently, where I imagine watching that with the pregnant, <laughs> recently made me feel much better about my own impending labour. Yes, exactly. No alien involvement will definitely be at the top of my birth And plan. no having to be quiet. Our baby will, of course, be inducted into the church once they arrive as a third-generation Jasonite. Uh, Tickety-tonk and all that, Francesca Catherine jones P.S. Rory, the whole monitor's bread, is just as good as it looks. So this is uh, Rory, who yeah. often tweets on a Saturday morning his latest loaf of yes, bread. Yes, I've seen, I've seen you retweeting his, his bread yeah, well, choices. He has, he has magical loaf qualities. He makes them himself, is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. He's got nothing else to do, so he does that. Anyway, Francisco. So after, after a whole Thank week you. of being technology, he goes back to bread making. Old school. Old school. Very old school. Bit of kneading. Uh, 11 minutes past three o'clock. You can email mayo at bbc.co.uk. What else do we have that's new and interesting? Creed 2. You remember when Creed came out and I was sort of really astonished by the fact that there was life in the Rocky franchise because after that, you know, there'd been the, the the Rocky Balboa film in which he, you know, he came out of retirement for one last fight and then, you know, you thought, this, where can this possibly go now? And then Creed, um, which managed to pick up the story by picking up on the the son of Apollo Creed, who tracked down Rocky to train him, and at first Rocky refused, but then then they you know then they form a sort of bond. So it was like, it, it was a new way of of taking the and, and injecting something new into it, and directed by Ryan Coogler, and it was re- really a, a, a really fine film, and really did well, and, and was very surprising because I really had thought the Rocky franchise is finished. So now we have. Creed 2. So uh, Michael B. Jordan is back uh, as Adonis Donnie, um, whose father was uh, killed in the ring by Drago, fighter for the Soviet Union. And now um, his I son... I did like that voice. Thank you. But it was the trailer, wasn't it? I am Drago, fighter for the Soviet Union, and played by Dolph Lundgren. So now Dolph Lundgren's son, Victor, 
wants a shot at the title and in order to do it he'll have to get that he'll have to go through uh you have to go through Michael B Jordan's character Donnie Adonis but essentially uh Sylvester Stallone having this sort of sense of history repeating itself and having gone through all this all those years ago isn't some isn't somebody who thinks this is a good idea he doesn't think that having some kind of second generation grudge match is something that should be done and suddenly our two central characters are falling out you don't think I can beat him is that what you're trying no. to say? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm not going to be here forever. And what's that supposed to mean? It means you got to do some smart thinking. But oh, you want to talk about smart decisions, Rock? You in this house all alone. Who been taking care of you? Me. I've been here for you. Who else you got? Listen. I'm taking this fight with or without you. So... What happened was after the success of Creed and then Black Panther, which was, Ryan Coogler was tied up with that, this uh, this ends up being directed by Stephen Cable Jr. from a script by Stallone and Jewel Taylor. And on one on the one hand, the, the, the coordinates of the story are deliberately familiar because there is there is an an inbuilt sense of history repeating itself, of generational struggles sort of being revisited. Um, but what the film manages to do after all this time, and it's you know it's remarkable, is once again to make old stories seem new and to make old riffs seem fresh again. I mean, okay, there aren't in, in the first film there was some there were some really really astonishing moments, such as that fight which appeared to be played out in one shot, which was really kind of breathtaking. We were talking about this, this is weird, but there's a strange connection between that and Roma. Well, I think you don't have that, but what you do have in the case of this is firstly characters that you, you feel that you spend a bit of time with, you, you really care about and that you're really invested in. Secondly, um, an arc which, yes, it's familiar, but on the other hand, it's it works because it's, you know, age-old stories being revisited. Are you now, you know, is your responsibility now to your family or is your responsibility to the sports? Is your responsibility to the title? You know, how is the baton passed from one generation to the other? How are the sins of the fathers revisited on, you know, on, on the sons and the daughters? All that stuff's going on. And then you have the fight sequences. Now, I have... I've said this before, and I was talking about this when I when I reviewed the Paddy Considine film Journeyman. I have never been to a boxing match, and I've never I don't think I've ever sort of, you know, watched a boxing match on television, not that I can think I have. I have seen many boxing movies though. So all I know about boxing is from boxing movies. And I know other people who are real experts in this area, and I am not one of them. But there was a couple of moments during the the Creed II boxing sequences that I started to turn into one of those old ladies that you used to see in the front row of World of Sport wrestling. Oh, for the wrestling, For yeah. the wrestling on a Saturday afternoon going, yes, come on, just get them. You know, that thing. And which is crazy, right? Because I, I don't have any of that kind of connection. I've, you know, I've never, I've never been somebody who was, I've said I've never... You've never wrestled anyone. I've never wrestled, I've never boxed, I've never watched a, a, a boxing match and the wrestling that was on World of Sport was a whole different thing. I mean, it was all theatre, wasn't it? It was, you know, haystacks and all that sort of thing. But the what that means is that the boxing sequences were working, and the reason they were working was firstly because they you know they have a, a technical uh, appeal and that they're, they're well put together. But secondly, because you've got involved in the characters, and I was thinking about this. There's a couple of sequences in which you know you you can feel the punches being landed, and the reason you can feel the punches being landed is because you care about the characters upon whom the punches are being landed. So around the edge of the sort of the central, you know, the, of, of the fight sequences, 
what happens is the construction of the character. So Tessa Thompson is terrifically sympathetic as the the girlfriend who has a musical career. In fact, I think that her, her character could have been developed more. It, there is a suggestion that there was more of her character at one point, and that, that has sort of slightly been trimmed down, which I think is a, is a little bit of a shame. But the most important thing is that what you end up with is this sense of a family drama. And in just the same way, bizarrely, that Roma is about very different people who are connected because they, you know, oddly enough, they share these experiences. In the case of Creed 2, it does exactly what the what that kind of drum would need to do, is that it makes you think that these are people that you that you know about, these are people that you care about, these are people that you can actually get in, involved with and and invest in. And and I did, and I, re- I really enjoyed it. It's quite long. It's two hours and ten minutes, and I, at no point did I ever feel, oh, this is overstaying its welcome. And I know at the beginning I did think, oh, you know, because I had to, funnily enough, I had to catch a plane, which I missed as a result of Creed Two being longer than I thought it was going to be. But what's more significant is that I didn't notice that it was longer than I thought it was going to be, hence me missing the plane, because because I was, you know, I was wrapped up in the drama. So I thought it was actually, it, it, I thought it had a real wallop to it, and I thought the characters were well done. And Sylvester Stallone does have that that sense of, you know, the wounded bear about him. There is something about, you know, he was Oscar nominated for supporting actor in, in Creed. And I think he actually won a Golden Globe for Creed as well, didn't he? And, you know, that he does have that, that sense of somebody who just looks like they've been through the ringer and yet they've still, you know, what they've got inside is some kind of battered nobility, which I like. And I like the relationship between those two characters, between, you know, the young upcomer and the old trainer. And I like the way in which, you know, the baton is passed from one. And I just lo- really like the way that the series has been completely reinvented as not being about Rocky. Simon Gray on this email, I adore yeah. all things Rocky. So bunked off for the first showing of Creed Two at the Everyman in Muswell Hill, having prepared by watching Creed last night. Oh, yeah, OK. I'd love to give you a review, but I sat behind three teenagers who talked, took pictures, used the phone torch, ate Noisy Crisps from Noisy Crisp Packets for over an hour and a half, danced, well, stood up and nodded their heads right. to every snippet of music, made inappropriate comments about every woman that appeared on screen and complained there wasn't enough boxing every time there wasn't any boxing. Oh, for heaven's sake. And ignored all pleas to shut up. The list goes on. I do know that they're going to be going to a leading sports shop now because they discussed it loudly for about half an hour. Right. I think the film is probably fantastic, but I'm too angry to really know. Yeah. Hope to try again next week. Love the show, Steve. Uh, Simon Gray. How very annoying. There is something about um, sports films that, that make you, that in, involve you in sports with which you have no... You know, it's it's like watching Next Goal Wins when I know nothing about football. It's like watching Tin Cup and I know nothing about golf. I mean, the genius of it is you don't have to understand that stuff in order to enjoy the films. I mean, as is also uh, demonstrated by the fact that one of the most enduring American sports genres is baseball, which we don't have here. We have softball or rounders or, you know, baseball is not a a British sport and yet the cinemas are full of baseball movies. Uh, Before we leave the boxing altogether, just a reminder, exclusive radio commentary on Five Live and the BBC Sport website from four o'clock on Sunday morning. Uh, for Tyson Fury against Deontay Wilder for the WBA Heavyweight Championship of the World, Mike Costello, who else, uh, will be ringside at the Staples Centre uh, in Los Angeles. That's four o'clock Sunday morning. That was neatly slipped in. Thank you. It's called production. It is. Uh, what a fine team we have. Thank you. It's 5.20. It's 3.20. 5.20. That was not quite so smooth. You're, you're on air. I know. Somewhere else. Be, what? This is all request Friday. Am I still here? Yeah. 
<laughs> 20 past three. Will that do? Yes. What else is new? Disobedience, which is the new film uh, starring Rachel Weiss and uh, Rachel McAdams. Um, latest from Chilean Argentine director Sebastian Lelio, who, was, who made the Oscar-winning A Fantastic Woman, which I absolutely loved. So the story is that um, Rachel Weiss's character is Ronit, who we first meet as a photographer in America, in New York. She returns to North London, where she grew up after her father's death, and she is reunited when she gets there. I mean, nobody expects to see her. With Esty, who's played by uh, Rachel McAdams, uh, who has since married their former mutual best friend, Dovid, played by uh, Alessandro Nivola. David was the favoured pupil of her father. Basically, her father was the mentor to David. He was known, her father was known as the Rav, and he was a very, very big presence in the, uh, in the Orthodox Jewish community in which they, they grew up and in which they lived. And she, Ronit, has been an, an absence for years and years. You, you discover that she went off and she hasn't been in contact and she almost didn't know that her father had died until somebody got in touch with her to tell her. That, she, that, that this had happened. And when she turns up, everyone's surprised to see her and everyone's very wary about her being there. And when she uh, first realises that uh, SD and David are now married, she is genuinely surprised and taken aback. And it looks like she's horrified. And what you start to realise is that there was a bond between SD and Ronit that was, that's you know way, way back in the past and is also tied up with the fact that Ronit had to go away, that she was sent away, that something I mean, you know, it's it's not that obscure, but you you, start, you understand that they had a that they were the, the the nature of their relationship was deemed to be something outside of what was acceptable, and Ronit reacted to this by being sent away. And now that she's back, all those all those uh, old connections start to sort of be uh, start to be sort of re-inflamed and. As as you watch the film, the film sort of ex- it explains its story not through people, not again, not through people telling you what happened, but through gesture and through what you see in the nature of their relationship. Anyway, here's a clip. So everything was all right when I left. No, I was ill, sort of ill. In my head, the Rav was afraid for me, and if I had to sleep with a man. Why not with our best friend? Oh, Esty. I think, I think he felt that marriage would cure me. It hasn't been a complete disaster. And that's enough. Do you have to have sex every Friday? It's expected. Medieval. It's not mandatory. Nobody gets beaten if they don't feel like it. What happened to you? Nothing. You happened to me. So you can hear in that, I mean, oddly enough, there's a kind of, there's an echo, although it is a coincidental echo, of the themes of the miseducation of Cameron Post, of somebody, you know, being a, a certain person and trying to think themselves through, trying to believe themselves into being somebody else because they're not allowed to be who they are because what they are is not acceptable in the community in which they live. And what's happened with these two different characters is that one of them has gone off to New York and basically sort of become herself and the other has stayed behind and attempted to repress the side of her that she's not been, you know, that, that is not acceptable to, to the community. And I mean, I thought this was really well done. It's bold, it's thought-provoking, it's clearly heartfelt, but it's also sensitive. It's based on a novel by Naomi Alderman, and it picks away at themes of loyalty and love and religion, and it does it with a mixture of subtlety and passion. I mean, it allows the audience 
to watch the relationships develop and to and to p- put the pieces together themselves, which I think is very important. I like a film that doesn't lead you by the hand. It you know it, it it allows you to fill in the gaps yourself, but it also doesn't shy away from depicting the passion that's clearly behind this relationship and which is in stark contrast to the sterility of the marriage which which now exists because that's what the community demands. Um, as soon as uh, the two central women are reunited, one thing that happens, which is which is very subtle, is they. It's almost like you can see them both becoming their younger selves again and becoming the element of rebellion because they were so close before in every way um, that they were that you sort of see them recharging those batteries and becoming younger versions of themselves again. There is, of course, a similarity to A Fantastic Woman because, again, that is a film in which a central character in the wake of a death suddenly finds themselves essentially shut out of their own life. And it's powerful and it touches a number of uh, sort of raw nerves, but I thought it was gripping and involving and I completely believed in the characters. I thought that at, at no point was it sensationally or sensational or exploitative, although it is very passionate and it's you can you know you can feel the the the, the emotion and the urgency of the emotion. I thought it I thought it was very, very well done. And what I liked about it was it's it's low-key and underplayed. And yet that doesn't mean that it's in any way bloodless. It just means that everything is kept at a, at a, at a level in which it's, it's credible and understandable and you completely believe in the characters and you believe in their struggles. And I thought it was also respectful on all sides to the, to the issues that it's dealing with, whether they're personal or religious or whatever it is. I thought, it, I, I, thought I, I liked it very much. I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's a good week, you know. Yes. It's awards season, isn't it? Yeah, it's all coming out. And we were hoping that Rachel Weiss would be on the show again because she's always such a great guest and very entertaining. Yeah, and she's very good in and, this. You know, it, it didn't work out. No, she's, she's still in America or something, but uh, well worth a visit. Well worth a visit. And presumably another contender for movie of the week. By me, they're all they're all lining up. Uh, what else can you squeeze in before three thirty? So Mowgli, this is the film that oh, yes. Andy Serkis yes. was working on <clears throat> ages and ages ago. I think back in twenty fifteen they were doing the initial photography for it. He ended up doing Breathe because originally this was going to be the first of the Imaginarium movies. And then it ended up taking longer than uh, than perhaps was originally expected. And of course there was the whole thing about the the the, the Disney. Uh, reanimation version of uh, Jungle Book was directed by John Favreau, which actually became such a big hit. So, this is based on the stories of Rudyard Kipling. Extensive use of motion capture, performance capture, to bring the story to life. Directed by Andy Serkis, as I said, shot 2015 South Africa and England, and cast which includes Christian Bale as Bagheera, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as Shere Khan, Kate Blanchett as Carr, Andy Serkis himself uh, as Baloo. And it's an it, it's an odd film, and Roman Chand as, as as Mowgli, and it's an odd film because one of the things about it is that after the John Favreau version, after the the new version of Jungle Book had happened, and we were all sort of quite knocked out by it, how yeah, it well great. that did yeah. it was, and but you know it's 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 very much a remake of the Disney version. It has the songs in it, you know, it has the musical sequences. It's got all all that kind of. What this is is it's deliberately a darker version, and it's also a version which runs the risk of falling between two stools because on the one hand it's you know it's a version with teeth it's a version with you know with with death it's a version with you know conflict on the other hand it's a version of the jungle book so it's like maybe it's too tough for the for the older audiences and and not tough enough for the 
too tough for the younger audiences, not tough enough for the older audiences. There was a lovely quote from Andy Serkis. When the film, when Netflix became involved in it again, so this is an, another Netflix release with an associated theatrical run, he said, it's really not meant for young kids, though I think it's possible that 10 or above can watch it. It was always meant to be PG-13. This allows us to go deeper with darker themes, to be scary and frightening in moments. The violence between the animals is not gratuitous, but it's definitely there. This way of going allows us to get out, to get the film out without compromise. So what he was saying was that because of what the of, of the film being backed by Netflix, that they had basically been able to make the film they wanted rather than having to change the film they wanted in order to get it into a cinema. Oddly enough, I think there is, there is a, a truth in that. It is very, very kind of unfortunate that there's the, you know, you, you know, you wait for a Jungle Book movie for 20 years and then two come at once. And, but it's impossible to imagine what this, you know, how this would have been received had it not been for the other version. But the, the, the main thing to say is, they are very different versions. And I liked this and I was surprised by by how much it worked for me because I, you know, I, 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 it, because the, it's been such a long production that always makes you worry. I think the things that are really impressive about Nitin Sony's music is really, really wonderful. I think it does have teeth and it does have bite. I can absolutely imagine it falling between two stools of not quite, you know, not quite hitting the target audience that it's, you know, that it's going for. And I also know that, you know, the critical response has been sort of rather, rather sniffy. Um, and part of me thinks, well, you know, I'm often accused of liking things because I like the filmmakers and I'm, a, you know, I, I am, as you know, a huge fan of Andy Serkis, but I did try to watch this completely dispassionately. And I really did think, you know, there are things in this that work really, really well. There are things that are in, just in terms of the way it's sort of visually realised, actually tell that it's, it's a good piece of storytelling. And funnily enough, although, you know, a lot of the attention may be on, on the, the way in which the visual stuff was done, the key thing about Andy Serkis is this. He's a storyteller first and foremost. Although he's right at the cutting edge of, uh, you know, um, motion capture, performance capture technology, he is a storyteller. And that's what we saw from, from you know, from, from Breathe. And I thought this was a, this was a well-told story. And I, that's actually what gripped me about it. I mean, obviously, that's also partly to do with, you know, the, the source material being as malleable as it is. But I found myself swept up in it and, uh, and I enjoyed it. I watched it on a small screen and I thought it worked perfectly well. And I thought that the darkness was there. Uh, and it was, there were moments in it that it was darker than I expected, but I thought it was a pretty solid piece of work. How's the CGI? Because uh, some of our correspondents Has are said, suggesting that it's not quite... Yeah, I mean, it's it's where it should be. Well, it's a weird one because it didn't. I I didn't find myself distracted. I had read a couple of things that said the CGI isn't perfect, and I knew that there was a couple of people who sort of watched it and thought the CGI was a bit wobbly. I, it, I was involved enough in the story that it, I honestly nothing that none of that bothered me while I was watching it. I didn't find it problematic. Okay, and I think partly as well because I think the score is so good that Nitin Sawney's music is so great that it's amazing how much a really good score can see you through troubled waters sometimes. Is that right? That's yeah. very eloquent and very beautifully Thank expressed. Thank you. Uh, you can email mayo at bbc.co.uk, text 85058. What are you going to do in the next half hour? Uh, we're going to do this documentary, uh, Three Identical Strangers, which is really remarkable. And also, excitingly, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Ralph Breaks the Internet Which well, I'm yes. looking forward to as well. 
338, TV Movie of the Week. Now it's time to be selected. Lauren Rose. Mark will choose Super 8. My choice would be Hail Caesar. Great cast, especially just, was so simple. Tilda Swinton, but mainly because of Channing Tatum's performance. I was pleasantly surprised. He's great, isn't he? How good he is uh, in this. And I loved the sailors dancing scene in the bar. Aaron Wood, I can't see any other choice than to have your weekend set with a double bill of Hail Caesar and They Live. Who'd have thought that an early December weekend would have been taken up with George Clooney and the late great Rowdy Roddy Piper as a juxtaposition? Matthew Hamilton, Jaws is one of the best movies ever. People should be watching it regularly. I haven't <laughs> seen Hail Caesar since it was in the cinema. It seems like it's time to re-watch it and it's my pick of the week. I hope the Coen brothers keep making films the way they do for a long time. They get so much out of out of George Clooney. Simon Andrew Morris, well, would the, this choice was so simple. Very good. They Live seems to be on every week. And every week I watch that alleyway fight scene with a big stupid grin on my face. <laughs> not a subtle movie, but these are not subtle times. Cue birdsong, says Simon. Hal Incandenza. I still can't get on board with Super 8 or Hail Caesar, even though both are right up my street in terms of genre. Mark will quite correctly pick They Live as its razor-sharp piece of cinematic insight that is not only incredibly entertaining but grows in stature with every passing year and seems more valid than ever in the social media and smartphone age. And finally, Craig S. Tom, I'm going with They Live because I'm all out of bubblegum. What is our TV movie of the week? Well, weirdly enough, because it hasn't come up before. I mean, I love They Live and I love Jaws and I love uh, Society and I love Tale of Tales. I'm going to go for Ravenous which is uh, 9pm on Saturday on the Horror Channel. And the reason I'm going to go for it is that Ravenous is um, a film by Antonia Bird, who's a really, really very, very fine filmmaker. And it's a sort of horror satire involving cannibalism um, in oh, the like 1840s me. with a cast which includes Guy Pearce, Robert Carlyle, Jeffrey Jones. And it, it, is a, it is a really remarkable film. I remember when it came out, I remember interviewing Robert Carlyle about it and I'm talking about how difficult it was to explain what the movie was about. Um, and, you know, Antonia Bird had, a, had a, a, a really, really remarkable career. She made Priest and she made Face and then she made Ravenous. And, um, she, yeah, so, I, so I'm going to go for that because I don't think it's ever come up on the list before. And it is 9pm on Saturday on the Horror Channel. Those other films are all great, but it's just I haven't, don't think I've had a chance to flag this one up before. And I, think, I don't think many people saw it. Okay. So it is well worth checking out. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. No, well, this is an easy one. A witless recycling of the H.G. Wells story from 1895 and the absurdity intact, but with the absurdity intact, but the, the wonderment, wonderment missing. missing, said Roger Ebert about The Time Machine. But it, is it the worst film on TV next week? The other contenders are Click, with Adam Sandler playing an architect, or A Walk Among the Tombstones from 2014, which Mark called, I find this is an interesting quote, Mark, depressing but rubbish. Yeah. Or shouldn't it be depressing and no, rubbish? No, because the whole point was it was like, oh, moody, depressing, therefore good. No, all moody, depressing, but rubbish. Simon Burgess, Click and the Time Machine may be badly made, but A Walk Among the Tombstones is a vile, nasty, misogynistic stain upon cinema. <laughs> Jeff Adams, The Time Machine is fairly bland and inoffensive. Some of the prosthetic effects are pretty neat, and The Time Machine itself is a gorgeous design. I'd watch it over Click any day of the week and twice on Sundays. Yeah. James Croxford, The Time Machine is awful. The only notable thing about it about it being uh, that it's the last known sighting of Samantha Mumba. Ian Lambert, It Has to Be Time Machine, a film that's bad but really interestingly bad. It's quite remarkable how all the elements are there for a decent science fiction film, but nothing gels at all. Any random 30 seconds make it look worth checking out, but no. <laughs> and Ian Johnston, The Time Machine or A Walk Among the Tombstones, both uninspiring and bland, 
But oh wait, there's an Adam Sandler comedy. We have a winner, so to speak. Click. What is TV Movie of the Week's about is bad? Click. As you just said it like that, it is. It's Mother! In, in almost any week when there's an Adam Sandler comedy that isn't Punch Drunk Love, it's, going to, it's just going to walk it, isn't it? Is it? I haven't yeah. seen it. It's very bad. Uh, Adam Sandler with a magic you know, remote control unit. It's just... Yeah. Uh, and actually, when, one of those films in which I don't think it's entirely Adam Sandler's fault. It's when can just, I avoid that? You can avoid Click at a quarter to seven in the evening on the Sony Movie Channel. Said with feeling... Is it Sony or Sony? Sony, I think. Is it Sony? I do think it's Sony. Yeah. Okay, Sony. Yeah. It's Sony words. Very good. What's your favourite bird, by the way? I forget. <laughs> I'm not telling you. Are you still not telling me? No, oh, I'm not telling you. This is going to last a long time. It is. Uh, so, are we talking Ralph Breaks the Internet? Ralph Breaks the Internet. Excellent. So, when the original came out, it was fated with some reviews that said it was up there with Toy Story, which it wasn't, but it was a terrifically sort of enjoyable romp. Had this sort of smartly nostalgic idea, um, old-fashioned arcade game, Fix-It uh, fix Felix, and the villain of the game decides that after 30 years on the job, there must be more to life than breaking things, so he escapes from his old world and he goes into, you know, uh, other games. He's in this first-person shooter thing and then he goes into the, you know, the, the candy speed racer thing and he meets Vanellope, played by Sarah Silverman who's got a glitch and he has to help her win a medal. And, and, and it, was, it was an interesting film because, you know, it had nods to Tron and Last Starfighter and actually to some extent, you know, Monsters, Inc. But, but the relationship kind of worked and the action sequences were fun and it, and it, was, actually, it was actually rather good. So now uh, Ralph breaks the internet. So the story is that the arcade has been connected to the Wi-Fi or the Wi-Fi or the Wi-Fi because they don't, they've never heard of Wi-Fi before. And uh, Vanellope's game, which has got a, a steering wheel when you sit and play it in the arcade, the steering wheel gets broken by somebody who's over-enthusiastically attempting to break the steering wheel. So, so consequently, the game is going to be turned off because the game's broken. It turns out to get a new steering wheel is going to cost more than the game is worth. So Ralph decides that in order to save the day, what he has to do is to go into Wi-Fi, into Wi-Fi, into Wi-Fi as he refers to it, find E-Boy, because he's heard that on E-Boy it is possible to buy one of these steering wheels. And so the two characters go off into, into the internet. And when they're in the internet, they go to eBay and they get involved in bidding for a steering wheel. But then what they haven't figured out is that the steering wheel will have to be paid for. And in order to pay for it, they try out a whole bunch of schemes, which are sort of internet-related uh, schemes, including making stupid videos that loads of people like, or as they refer to in the internet world, get hearts for. Here's a clip. This is the leaf blower guy? Who? It's the man with the undulating jowls. So? His video has 1.3 million hearts. Well! <laughs> Why didn't you tell me I was in the presence of a genius? Grab him a drink. <laughs> yeah, this lady named Shank, she actually made the video. She's the one who told us to come see you. No wonder your video's so dope. Shank is for real cool, right? <laughs> she is not. I'm the cool one getting all the hearts. Well, that's right, you big baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what did you say your name was? Ralph. Wreck-It Ralph. Well, Wreck-It Ralph, you are trending. And these are for you. Heart. Heart, 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 heart,
on the one hand, they, they, I mean, there's quite a lot of you know, fairly straightforward but fairly, um, you know, well-played-out jokes about, the, you know, the internet being a series of different places with his IMDb and there's Amazon and there's eBoy. Although I have to say, when I came out of it, Van Connor, who's a fellow film critic, pointed out almost immediately that it shares many many of its ideas and riffs with the Emoji movie, which actually immediately sort of, you know, when you watch really? something and you, you think, you I kind of enjoyed that, and then somebody says something, you go, oh, yeah, okay, fine. Um uh, there's there are a couple of sequences that I like very much. There's one sequence in which uh, Nellope finds herself in a room full of uh, Disney princesses who are all trying to figure out what kind of Disney princess she is. And uh, she, she's, she says, you know, what, they're saying, well, you know, have, are, you, are you stuck in a castle? Have you got, you've got all these problems and these problems? You know, we've tied up by a monster. And she says, do you want me to call the police? There's another sequence that made me laugh very much when Ralph wanders into an area which is the comments section. And suddenly becomes crushingly depressed, and there is a whole thing. But ah, yes, never read the comments. I've something I've told you many something times. Something I know. Yes, never, never go below the line. And there are some smart gags about pop-up ads about when you wander around the internet. Pop-up ads that get knocked out of place by ad blocker security guards, and it, there's a visit to the dark net and all that sort of stuff. Uh, most encouragingly, Penelope finds herself in this what looks like a kind of fantastically violent race game. Remember there was a line in the first one in which Ralph suddenly says, you know, when when did video became, video games become so violent and scary? Well, in this one, they go into a violent, scary game in which our heroine discovers that... Oh, sorry, do you want me to stop so you put your hand No, up? no, no, you but, carry on. In which our heroine discovers that, um, you know... Actually, she really likes being in this world and she finds a sort of heroine figure uh, played by Gal Gadot, voiced by uh, Gal Gadot. And so that she, she kind of discovers her own... And it, as, as with so many of these stories, it's about discovering your own identity, discovering who you are, you know, being able to define your own personality in your own, own environment. So if you compare it to something like Inside Out, which is, you know, walking the corridors of the mind, which I think is kind of like the perfect version of this sort of story... It's not that. I mean, you remember the numbskulls, which is the old mm-hmm. sort of, you know, to, and it, like Inside Out was like the platonic ideal of what the numbskulls might be like. Well, this isn't that, and it's not in that territory, but it was kind of cute and enjoyable, and there were there were smart gags in it about the visualisation of the idea of the internet. I mean, occasionally it just seemed like, a, 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 you know, an absolute forest of um, of logos and of sort of familiar name checks. But it does have more than that because it does have a sort of central story about what friendship means and what defining your own self means. And I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was kind of fun. I didn't, I'm, I'm not sure that it's going to change the world, but I thought it was, I thought it was, you know, entertaining. Uh, and there were enough smart jokes in it about the internet to just about paste over the cracks and the fact that you have seen a lot of this done before. And the story itself isn't massively original, but it's, you know, nicely played out. Mark Wilson says, my own good lady are indoors. Child one and child two are 13 and 11 years. Uh, and I took the opportunity to attend our local movie theatre to watch Ralph Breaks the Internet. It was so much fun. Okay. It easily passed the six laugh test, made us all emotional at the end it creates a visual representation of the internet which is interesting and enjoyable to explore as the characters of ralph and vanellope find their way through this new land there is clearly lots of product placement but i didn't find it distracting on the contrary i thought the social commentary of the role of the internet in our lives was well handled my favorite parts was where i actually the bit i was most wary of from the trailers the self-reverential world of disney but the disney princess no spoilers here is yeah. there in the trailer have some wonderful moments of backstage humor they do 
current hashtag MeToo relevance of them unpacking the way they're portrayed in Disney movies. Yeah. was hilarious as were the visual gags on their T-shirts. I expect this next sentence will be removed by the puppet master, but the musical number... Okay, well, I can read it. And lead up to what stimulates such a number was insightful and funny. The musical film references in the sequence were simply a joy. Overall, this is a fun family movie and one that reminds us all that it's best Disney create at the at its best Disney creates great characters tells good stories that have an equal balance of humor and heart and is still the leader in the animated world of movie making most of all it's nice in all the too often sequel driven cinema landscape to have a sequel that lives up to the original in the opinion of the Wilson clan there we go so consider that another thumbs up, Mark. We've yes. Ten minutes left. What are you going to do? So um, this documentary, Three Identical Strangers, which is uh, directed by uh, Tim Wall. Now, the first thing to say about that is this. Do you remember when we talked about uh, Searching for Sugar Man? Okay. Yes. Which is a documentary. I mean, obviously, do- uh, in the case of any... It's a do- number of years ago now. Yeah. In the case of any documentary, if a documentary starts to attract attention, it's often the case that you will find out from the attention that the documentary gets, stuff that is going that is then revealed during the course of the documentary. So when we when I was reviewing Searching for Sugar Man, I said the best way to see this is to really not know anything about the story in advance. Because if you do, there are certain twists and turns of the way the story is told that may seem sort of less to let have less impact because you you already know. So I'm assuming that a number of people already know a number of key facts about three identical strangers. But I saw it cold, and so in reviewing it, I'm going to assume that people don't know any more than this. So I may well end up saying less than people already know. But I think that's because I'm trying to talk about the way the film is constructed and the way the film tells its story, as opposed to what is already out there in the world. And obviously, it has yes, been two of them were on Five Live yesterday. Fine. Yeah. Okay. So essentially, it starts um, with uh, a, a young man remembering in 1980 his first day of college and going to college and turning up at college and having the strange experience of everyone that he met greeting him as if they knew him. All these station wagons are dropping kids off. I was nervous. I just got to the school. I didn't know anybody. I was a freshman. I was never the captain of the football team in high school. So I was never really, like, popular. So I'm walking around trying to find where my dorm is. Meanwhile, all these people are coming up to me saying, hi, how are you? How was your summer? Mine was great. How was yours? Super. Why are they asking me how my summer was? I don't know. Everybody's being extremely friendly to me, and they're going out of their way to do it. I don't mean just a hi. I mean claps on the back and high fives. And I was a little bit bewildered by this because no one gets this kind of a welcome their first day at school. And girls were kissing me, like fully kissing me, saying, I'm so glad you came back. I was saying thank you and hello back, but I had never been there before and I didn't know them. So essentially, he's walking through a world in which people seem to know him. And the next thing that happens is someone says, were you adopted? And he says, yes. And he says, what's your date of birth? And he tells him and he says, you're not going to believe this but I think you have a twin brother who has been here at the university that everyone is confusing you with. And they find the guy, and lo and behold, there is a twin brother. And because the name of the film is Three Identical Strangers, 
it's not giving anything more than the title. Away. To, to reveal that when that story about these two identical twins finding each other completely by accident, both had been adopted, uh, you know, uh, very, very young, that a third person comes forward. And it turns out that there are three of them, that there are three identical strangers, three children who have been separated at birth and had been brought up by different adoptive families, who it turns out, one of which is a very blue-collar family, another of which is a kind of more middle-class family, another of which is a more affluent family. And despite the fact that they've had very different upbringings, they appear to have extraordinary amounts in common. The mannerisms, the, the way they talk, their, their taste in cigarettes. Turns out they all smoke the same brand of cigarettes. They start becoming a news phenomenon, going on news shows in which people ask whether they have the same taste in women. There's a lot of archive footage of this stuff, of them talking and sitting with their legs crossed in the same way and holding their hands in the same way, making the same kind of gestures. At this point, now starting to wear the same clothes because it's starting to become a thing. And they become quite celebrated. They make a cameo appearance in in the Madonna film, um, uh, Desperately Seeking Susan. They become figures known out and about on town, on the town, and then they start a business together. And all of this is kind of fairly well recorded, though I have to confess that I didn't know this story before, you know, before I said it the same way I didn't know the story of Sugar Man beforehand. And so at the beginning, it's a, wow, this is remarkable. Wow, that's even more remarkable. But then what happens is that that's just the beginning. Questions start to arise. How were they adopted and why weren't the parents told that there were, that there were, that there were, uh, you know, three of them? Is it mere coincidence that the ways in which they were placed into families seemed to sort of, you know, stretch across these social boundaries. And they, the documentary starts to uncover what looks more and more like a really bizarre conspiracy of silence. Now, the thing about it is, that in the way that the film tells the story, on the one hand, it uses reconstructions, <coughs> actually rather well-done reconstructions. On the other hand, it uses modern interviews and also archive footage. And as I said, like Searching for Sugar Man, in the storytelling, the storytelling itself requires a certain withholding of facts and a certain assumption that you don't know this story already. And I'm w watching this thing going, what, what, what? N no, what? I mean, literally, like, no. And at every turn, the story takes, an, you know, another turn and it goes from being one kind of movie into a different kind of movie. And <clears throat> the underlying theme, on the one hand, it's about nature nurture. It's about whether three people growing up in disparate lives will actually have similar personality traits. But then it becomes much more about how did this situation arise? And, you know, how is it that they didn't know about each other? And why is it that they didn't know about each other? And it starts to pick away at the ethics of, uh, you know, investigation into psychological backgrounds and the the, the, the ethics of how... They, I mean, it's, it's almost like they, 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 they appear to be sort of part of some, you know, weird ongoing experiment. And what I really liked about the film was that on the one hand, there is a it, it's, it's an extraordinary story. But the, the, the secret of a good documentary isn't just an extraordinary story. It's the way in which you tell that story. It's the way in which you find the narrative that works for the film. And often when people review documentaries, what they're what they're reviewing is is the story itself. In the case of this, I thought it was a story that was really well told because I watched it. I mean, uh, uh, you know, at times, you, like, you, you, I was literally going, no, really? And uh, I, th I thought on the one hand, it has this very interesting investigation of, 
you know, the difference between, you know, are your influences nature or nurture? But also behind it, there is this much darker, much stranger thing that, you know, truth is stranger than fiction, unpicking the story behind them and finding this really kind of odd, sinister background to the story. And I thought it was, I thought it was really well made. I thought that what it managed to do was to take a story that had this many twists and turns. And there are enough people in the story who say, you know, I, I thought that this this in itself was astonishing, and then this next thing happened. The most from right from the very beginning, that two twins find each other, and then the astonishing thing is that it turns out that there's a third one. But that's only really like the first act of the film, and having established that, it then follows the rest of its story in a way which is really really intriguing. I thought it was I thought it was terrific. At times, it was absolutely heartbreaking. I thought it was uh, movingly done and very, very engrossing. As I said, I am certain that many people hearing this will already know more about the story than I'm saying. But um, to review it as a piece of filmmaking, I saw it knowing nothing at all. And the film led me through this. At times, it's like a thriller. At times, it has a real sort of psychological thriller narrative that it plays very well. Well, I'm confused, really, because there are so many movies that could be Movie of the Week. We'll just have to put it to the test. Mark, what is our... Movie of the week. Three identical strangers. It's nice. It's a thrush. It's a thrush. Isn't that beautiful? It is lovely. Proper bird song, that is. We haven't said anything offensive or anything. No, I know. Is it a thrush you love? It's not, no. I mean, that is lovely, but that's not my favourite. What is your favourite bird, then? My favourite bird, although this is a, this is very hackneyed, my favourite bird is I love the, the I love gulls. I love the sound of, you know, seagull. I know seagull isn't it, but of gulls. I love, the, because I love the sea, and I whenever, if I hear gulls, it just makes me think... I'm near the sea. The and I are... think it's, it's just, it is such a beautiful sound. And I know some people really hate it because no, I like not it. everyone's a fan of The confusing uh, thing is that gulls are moving inland more and more. And, I know, yeah. And in the middle of London... London? London, you get gulls a lot of the time. Can so... I tell you, the most extraordinary <clears throat> thing happened, OK? So, I was in, uh, I was in Cornwall and uh, by the coast and suddenly there was this field and it had about 40 gulls in it, right? On the gulls on the ground. Mm-hmm. And they were walking around on the ground. They were flying, walking around the ground. It was really odd. And I suddenly looked around and I said to the good lady professor, I said, look, look this is like Alfred Hitchcock. It's like the birds. She said, no, don't be silly. They just, you know, maybe somebody's put food out or something. But no, they, the gulls were everywhere. And then I looked somewhere else and then they were everywhere. And then suddenly there was some gulls were up in the end and the other was, then they were like they were having fun. And I thought that what happened was that there was a colony, whatever it is, a group of gulls and another group of gulls had come in from some other area and they were having some kind of territorial fight because they were, they, and they were really behaving strangely. Like they weren't being, you know, you, you, they weren't frightened of humans or cars or anything at all. It was, and I, it was just really odd. I said, Linda, something's going on. This is like Daphne du Maurier. Something's going on. And then I noticed that there was flying ants everywhere. And did you know, you know this is what happens? 
the day that you know the day of the flying ants that mm-hmm. happens it happens in different times in different places but there's a day when ants develop and they become flying ants right the seagulls or the gulls of the birds eat the ants the ants when they're inside the seagulls produce a certain form of acid formic acid i think it may be and the acid has the same effect on them that alcohol does on people wow and the gulls get drunk and they literally start going around like, all right, yeah, come over here and say that. And suddenly they start behaving completely weirdly, like, you know, like a bunch of drunk teenagers. And I wasn't imagining this. This was what was happening. And, of course, it was the day of the ants and all these gulls were stoned off their heads on flying ants. Gulls just want to have fun. And there we go. I put it on the T and you just... David Kramer from Northern Germany. Is that an interesting story? I think it's a very interesting story and one you hadn't told before. Thank you. David Kramer is in Northern Germany. On last week's show, you read out an email from arts, culture and media student Evi Lodge, one of Simon's most favourite names, which is true. Yeah. And Evi Lodge will definitely go on to achieve greatness because you would vote for Evi Lodge. Evi was shown a a video during uh, a film class which featured your bad selves as... A hurried hello to Jason Isaacs at the very end. Other highlights include the other film-related mark, namely The Good Doctor Cousins. I know this because I made the video essay. It was during my first year of studying arts, culture and media at the University of Groningen. In my first year, feeling particularly clever, I decided to make a video essay about video essays. I'm glad to hear <laughs> that on, my work... Hang on, hang on. It's a, a third... What was it? A fourth wall break within a fourth wall break? That's like 16 walls. There you go. That's what it is. I'm glad to hear my work is still being shown to other students. Shout out to Dr Miklos Kiss from the film department, even happier to hear that there are other wit attainees taking on the challenge of completing the KCM programme. Insider tip to Evie, don't forget to check out the pop music classes or you'll miss the best part of the programme. Keep on the good work, everybody. That's David Kramer in North Germany. Very good. Uh, I think I've got time for, for one more email before we get to the DVD of the week. OK, I've got a, I've got a film review to do very quickly. Well, that's way, way more important. No, no, you do your email and then I'll do the film review because I haven't got a huge amount to say about it. OK. Well, it's from David Evans, and I think you just would like to know about this. Go ahead. He's been a listener for many years. Uh, He says, I've had a niggling feeling that I've been somewhat derelict in my recruitment duties. My 30-year-old son, Dan, and I share a love of your podcast, but he got there first. And up till now, I've not been able to sign anyone up. So I'm delighted now to tell you that about my first convert to the church. Do you know who it is, Mark? No. My first convert to the church is my daughter's old English bulldog. Very good. Think Spike from Tom and Jerry. Also, to thank you both for the restorative effect that your wittering has had on him. On Tuesday, I went to collect Boston, for that's his name. He'd been staying at a dog boarding home while my daughter spent a week in Tenerife with her boyfriend. When, he friend- when the friendly lady from the kennels brought him to the car, I could quickly see that he was not his usual self. Completely underwhelmed to see me, none of the usual jumping up and tail-wagging and slobbering. Clearly he wasn't impressed with being left behind for a week. He was very down in the mouth and as mournful-looking as only bulldogs can be. By the way, no reflection on the kennels who looked after him very well. With a doleful look that said, don't expect any help from me, mate, he declined to make his usual leap into the boot, so I had no choice but to heft him into the back of the car and drove off. He promptly slumped down in the boot space instead of adopting his usual upright, alert and excited-looking around posture. I was a bit <laughs> Excited-looking def- around posture. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's a great phrase. I have that occasionally. <laughs> 
I was a bit deflated as I'd been looking forward to seeing him and have a real soft spot for the big lug. So to cheer myself up, I put on the Eddie, Red- Eddie Redmayne podcast that you did a couple of weeks ago. Eddie Redmayne. As I was chuckling away to the opening How Low Can You Go segment, I noticed in the rearview mirror that he was now standing up with his ears pricked up. This is the dog, not Eddie Redmayne. Clearly the throaty growling from the speakers had caught his attention. He continued in this manner for a while and then contentedly rested his head on the back seat and remained like this, listening rapidly to the podcast for the 20-minute journey back home. That'll be the restorative powers of Hamilton Bohannon then. (laughs) What a transformation when we got back home. He bounded out of the car, nearly bowled my wife over with exuberance. He then spent the next few minutes demonstrating in no uncertain terms just how pleased he was to see us. I know that there are dog-friendly film screenings and a dog-friendly podcast is certainly a welcome addition to the pet entertainment portfolio. At Boston's That's very good, the pet entertainment portfolio, That what lovely phrase. At Boston's request, my daughter will now be leaving the podcast playing while she goes to work, and I'm going to try him out on the Isle of Dogs next time. Very good. With us. Uh, that's from David Evans. Thank uh, you, David. Thank you. What a great email. And Kate Davis says, about your flexible, rigid exploration, Yeah, I'm sure you don't need me to say on behalf of all, try being a woman. Thank you for that. Just pass that on. Although, you know, it's a particular moment for chat, if that's what they have to go through. And the doctor says, I'm afraid we're going to need a rigid one. And you think, oh, can't I do a flexible one? Well, I'll have the epidural now. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, you've got, a, you've got a film to review without much to say. Oh, well, just very quickly, Surviving Christmas with the Relatives, which is described as um, the writer of Fatal Attraction takes on Christmas. So, you know, boiled bunnies with all the trimmings. So, time-honoured formula. Hey! hey. Uh, disparate elements you sound of so family. unimpressed. No, yeah, disparate elements of a family come together on Christmas Eve, proceed to bicker and squabble. The venue is a ramshackle country home with a leaky roof. That one of them is inherited. Miranda has inherited the house. Uh, Jim Whelan has inherited the house. And her sister, Lila, played by Jolly Richardson, has gone off to America and become a successful actor and has now come back. Miranda is married to former architect Dan, who has a son from a previous marriage. He's struggling with the idea of this this good life that they're now leading in this leaky house. Lila has a sleeky, a sleazy yank husband, Trent, who nobody likes and is an addict, which gives him something in common with Dan's son. And then Ronnie Ancona is this tipsy friend, Vicky, who I have to say is rather poorly served by the script. And they're all thrown together in the house and old wounds are reopened. Um, it, it's an odd thing. I mean, I actually think James Dearden is... Um, has, has done some good stuff in the past. Uh, you know, Fatal Attraction, obviously his original script for that is a, a very, very interesting piece of work, as was the, the film that he made before it became Fatal Attraction, because obviously he made the, the you know, what was it called, Backtrack, or Diversion it was called, whatever it was called before. Um, but this is a film in which you think, oh, OK, well, you know, this is a time-honoured formula. The family get together at Christmas and they all squabble and they all bicker, but at the end they find some kind of resolution. And I did think, oh, the idea of the writer of Fatal Attraction takes on the Christmas movie, that'll be interesting, because I've just been doing a programme about Christmas movies for the Secrets of Cinema, which is going, it's going to be on the BBC uh, just before Christmas. A good seasonal booking. A good seasonal booking. But the problem with this is it's a joke, in w- it's a film in which there is an extended joke about... Uh, Dan being unable to kill the turkey gobbles. It's one in which there's a lot of people falling over into things and falling over on their bottoms. It is a film in which there is a joke in which the little dog eats a Viagra pill and then attempts to um, copulate with various objects. And you go, oh, okay, uh, right. It's 
it's not i mean it's a shame because there's a lot of talent involved in it and i had i had foolishly gone in thinking oh this might actually be you know something that's got a kind of scabrous wit and all the rest of it to it but it was really quite depressing good well that's a shame that's a bit of an uplifting moment on which to finish the show apart from the dvd of the week apart from the dvd of the week okay here we go cue the music Hey, 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 hey. That's a weird sound. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, Mark. Hey. Ant-Man and the Wasp is out on DVD on Monday, probably the latest in the ever-expanding Marvel Cinematic Universe. There have been 20 films since 2008's Iron Man, and there's no sign of the universe slowing down, with at least three major movies slated for release next year. Yep. With so many characters and comics to choose from, it could be several centuries until the MCU runs out of material. So to celebrate the DVD release of Ant-Man and the Wasp, here's a little MCU quiz for you, Mark. Yes, go ahead. Please ready yourself for Marvel or Made Up. Okay, see, I will, I will, I will get nil for this. You simply but... have to tell me which of the following are totes legit okay. Marvel characters okay. and which are made okay, up. Okay, and I will get it all wrong. Marvel or Made, made up. up. Number one, Aqueduct. <laughs> Okay, that's made up. That's funny. No, that's Marvel. Originally known as Water Wizard. Really? There's a character called Aqueduct, not Aquaman? Aqueduct. You, oh, well, there we go. There if you're going to query this, it's going to be a long feature. No, but you see... But you see okay, fine. So I... Okay. There is a, there is literally a character called Aqueduct. In the film, in the cinematic universe. Why or you, in the actual... Why or in the you, comic books. Why don't you just talk to me and not them? Because Simon wrote the questions. You've got no idea. Yeah, but then you go off mic and then we can't hear what you say. Yeah, but I'm just... I'm turning to Simon to say, is there, is there actually a Marvel Okay, character? number one is Aqueduct. Number two, Scrofula. Made up. Correct. Typeface. Marvel. Correct. A.K.A. Gordon Thomas. His face was covered with various painted letters. <laughs> Uncle Knuckles. <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> Marvel. No, made up. Made up again. The Dong. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm going to say made up, but I'm sure it's actually going to be Marvel. No, it's made up. Made up. <laughs> the Cleric. Oh, stop it. Uh, Marvel. Yes, the Cleric's past remained a mystery. However, it is known that he was present on the Kiln prison planet. When the <laughs> on the what prison planet? <laughs> anyway, and finally, the woodlouse. Uh, made up. Correct. Hey. It's made up. There we go. But, but on, on a sort of 50-50 hit rate basis, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like the stopped clock, isn't it? Yes. There's, All like, right, let me ask you this. There's okay? che- cheese or typeface. Have you seen that game where you get a word and you have to <laughs> say whether it's a cheese or okay. a typeface? Let me ask you this, okay? Okay, go on. It's not but, but, uh, a real comic book character or made-up comic book character, okay? Mm-hmm. Ambush bug. Uh, real. Yeah, it is real, real character. Yeah. Do I pass? 100%. Yeah, you do. Martin Harrison, as a big Marvel fan, I'm going to have to choose Mission Impossible Fallout. I mean... Is there really a character called Aqueduct? Ant-Man and the Wasp was good fun and all that, but Mission Impossible Fallout was an action movie at the absolute top of its game and exactly what a good trip to the cinema should deliver. The next Bond movie is going to have to deal with a Tom Cruise-shaped elephant in the room. Karen Richardson, (laughs) my choice is Mission Impossible Fallout. Incredible that a franchise could churn out such a thrilling... Oh dear, it's over two hours long, but even though I'm sitting at the end of the aisle, I don't go to the bathroom in case I miss anything. Ride. 
on its seventh outing. I think Mark will choose it as well. What is our DVD of the week? Mission Impossible Fallout. I watched it this week, actually. It's just great. And, and they're all absolutely right. And, and as you said in your original review, to get to this number in the, and actually still deliver uh, an action yeah, film like I that know. one, everything is topped. Everything, okay, it could finish now. Oh, you're going to go and top that as well? No, it's just great, isn't it? It's really, really good. And Tom Cruise does amazing stunts in that. Yeah, it's astonishing. So that's our DVD of the week. And Mark, what a terrific choice that is. Thank you very much. Thank, I love, yeah, thank yes. you very much. What a great entertaining romp this has been. Yes, it's been terrific, hasn't it? Have you enjoyed it? I've enjoyed it more than usual. What fact. have you enjoyed most? The bird song. I enjoyed the bird song and you telling us all about... Oh, look, Sophie's not here. So no, I know. We can't do that. All and then that we've stuff. given her enough work as it was. Oh, anyway. she, she's there. I enjoyed, I enjoyed it. All but the hello. stuff that you were telling us about. Is that about. Sophie in the corner? No yeah. one put Sophie in the corner. No. But I did enjoy that bit particularly. That was my favourite part <laughs> Very of the good. whole show. Okay.